that I'm a little bit late. I'm uh, going to take some photos, and I'm so late that instead of hitting the gavel, I hit the coaster, and that made <laughs> So I'm off to a good start, everybody. <laughs> Roll call, please. Councilmember Duran. Here. Councilmember McReynolds. Here. Councilmember Johnson. Here. Councilmember Halter. Here. Councilmember Campos. Here. Deputy Mayor Sanchez Palacios. Here. And Mayor Schrader. Here. All members are present. So, uh, Pledge of Allegiance, Mr. McReynolds, would you like to lead us? Please join us in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and Okay, special presentations and announcements from Supervisor Levere's office. There's Matt. Well, good evening, uh, Mr. Mayor, Madam Deputy Mayor, Council Members, Mr. Alakon. Thank you so much for having me tonight. I'll try to keep this brief. I know you have a busy agenda. Uh, I want to start by congratulating the city on the King Tide Walk event on Saturday. Uh, Heather and the entire team that made that possible was just so well done well-organized, there's a lot of people there, really informative as we kind of deal with the issue of sea level rise, which obviously impacts this beautiful coastal city. So thank you for putting on such a great event. Just wanted to give three quick updates tonight. Um, the first two are storm-related. Um, as many of you know, we have been actively trying to catalog uh, as much damage as possible uh, from the storms earlier this month. Um, and it's so imperative because as of today, we still don't have the FEMA major declaration. Uh, that's the declaration which is going to give uh, individual assistance to private property owners, to individuals, uh, many of whom have significant losses, and right now they don't have any FEMA resources coming to their aid. So we've been busy trying to catalog. If you on the council, anybody watching in the public, if you know anyone who suffered damage from the storm, please make sure uh, they go to vcemergency.com and fill out the damage form. Uh, we were out in the field all day today with FEMA and, and uh, Congressman Carbajal, getting a, a first-hand visual of the impacts so FEMA could see it. Santa Barbara County has it, we don't have it yet. And it's really imperative for all of the people here in Ventura County who suffered a lot of loss. It, it's strange, the FEMA rules is you could have 18 feet of mud stacked up directly against your house so you can't even get into it. But that's not considered a major damage because your house is still standing. And so it's really important that we show FEMA the extent of what happened here in Ventura County. And so if any of you know anybody, please let's get the word out that we catalog all of this damage because we need that, uh, that designation to help individuals here. Uh, and then you might be getting a lot of questions on uh, the beach advisories that went out given the water quality. Um, as of today, both Surfer, Knowles, and Harbor Cove in the harbor have been cleared through testing. Uh, you might have known that the Oi Valley Sanitation District uh, had two critical um, pipe breaks in, the, in that heart of the storm. And uh, 14 million gallons of sewage was released into San Antonio Creek, which just then went into Ventura River onto the ocean. Um, just for perspective, 14 million gallons is a lot, but at the county we have gauges in the river, and, and what we saw during the storm was there was actually 150,000 gallons a second flowing through the gauge. So uh, hopefully a lot of that waste was flushed out uh, but more testing was done today. Right now, there's still advisories for all of the beaches from 
uh, Mondo's all the way to Marina Park. But with the new testing today, results will get out tomorrow, and hopefully uh, the rest of those advisories will be released tomorrow. But that's the update if you get questions on the, on the, uh, the water advisories still in effect. And then lastly, I just wanted to take a moment to extend uh, my personal appreciation uh, for the leadership of, of this council, uh, Mr. Alakon, uh, Ms. Leona Rollins, uh, when it comes to the issue of homelessness. Uh, tomorrow at my board meeting, we are going to be approving a, a contract uh, with a consultant who is going to guide uh, some very intense strategic planning on the issue of homelessness over the next few months. Uh, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? Where are the gaps? What are the needs? You know, what areas moving forward do we really need to, to focus on uh, to best uh, address the issue? And I am just thrilled that the city of Ventura is going to be part of that process because of all of your leadership. You're going to have a critical seat at that table. Uh, it's going to be an exhaustive six months. Uh, stakeholder meetings, businesses, nonprofits, uh, community outreach, uh, significant strategic planning, and then ultimately the drafting really of a comprehensive plan which is hopefully going to guide our efforts over the next uh, years. Uh, some new innovative approaches uh, to really boil down and focus on this issue, something that I know all of you care about, something I care about deeply, and it's a regional problem. It takes all of us working together, and this is just a really, really important first step. So I just wanted to say thank you uh, for being there and having a seat at that table and being part of this important process. With that, I hope all of you get out of here at a decent hour tonight, and uh, have a great meeting. Thank you, Supervisor LeVere. Um, business of the month in the Green Awards, Mr. City Clerk, am I going in the right direction? You are, yes, uh, Mr. Mayor, and you've got your talking points in the back. I do. Very last page. Very last page. Okay. Thank you. Next, we'll recognize the City slash Chamber Business of the Month Award recipients for their special achievements and unique contributions made to the city. So we'll have the uh, Business of the Month Award E for October 2022 from Scrubs on the Run, Reina Chavez. Um, so from Scrubs on the Run was founded in Ventura in 2012. Scrubs on the Run affords affordable quality scrubs, medical uniforms, and accessories with additional locations in Oxnard and Thousand Oaks. So we'll ask all of our awardees, actually, you can go ahead and continue through the, the businesses. We'll ask all of our awardees to go ahead and line up here, and once we have everyone up here, we'll invite the mayor down and we'll do a group, a group photo. Thank you. The next Business of the Month awardee for November of 22 is to Island Packer, Cheryl Connolly. A family-run company since 1968, Island Packers is the official boat concessionaire for the Channel Islands National Park, offering year-round transportation to the beautiful Channel Islands. The Business of the Month awardee for December 22 is from Cafe Facel, Brian Schofield. A family-owned business with locations in Ventura and Camarillo, specializing in French cuisine with a focus on pastries and desserts. Congratulations to all our awardees. You want me to take picture with them now and then go to green businesses? Sure, we, we can do them all as a group, so you can go ahead and go right on to your green business awards as well. And that was the... Okay, is that the, uh, from Unitary Universalist Church of Ventura, Jim Merrill? 
Their mission, their mission statement is invite connections and diversity, spark and nurture free journeys of spiritual growth. Reach out to create a more just and loving community in harmony with nature. From Bank of Italy Cocktail Trust, Adam Sandori, a coastal Italian-inspired cocktail bar serving seasonally-inspired cocktails, delicious amare, and fabulous food every night until late. We might need that place tonight. Um, You're welcome anytime. Uh, I did not. So, you know, give me that. Thank you, Deputy Mayor. You're the best for saving me in a major embarrassment. Uh, from Taqueria Tapetilan, Juan Gonzalez, a family-oriented restaurant located in the heart of the art community on the historic west side of Ventura that has been serving fresh, delicious food and great service, an amazing experience for 30 years. I'll jump out. Let's go ahead and give him a round of applause. put the mirror right in the middle. Thank you, Deputy Mayor, for helping me out there. Okay, on to Executive Director Report, CAPS Media Presentation. Mr. Davidson, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Well, thank you. Pardon? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, it's great to see you all. Um, and thank you for giving me the opportunity to update you on CAPS. It's been a while. Uh, and I'm, I'm stepping back, assuming you don't know what it is. <laughs> so let's dive in. Uh, as those of you know, I'm Patrick Davidson. I'm the Executive Director. CAPS stands for Community Access Partners of San Buena Ventura. It was founded in 2000. Next slide. Go to the next one, please. Yeah, we're, we're a little mixed up here. Uh, it was founded in 2000 by a group of community-minded citizens with common goal to encourage civic engagement, provide access to information, and a platform for creative expression. To be clear, CAPS is an independent 501c3 organization. We are not a division of the city although we love working with the city. Um, we belong to the entire community. They built it, we serve the community. When CAPS was founded, a key factor was an FCC ruling 
that required cable operators to set aside television channels for free to the public. These are called PEG channels. It stands for Public Education and Government. Can we go to the next slide? Yeah, there we are. Thank you. CAPS is a membership organization. Anyone who lives, next slide, anyone who lives, works, or attends school in Ventura can be a member. Likewise, we support nonprofits that serve the community. Hundreds of Ventura residents and organizations have been members of CAPS since its inception. Next slide. The center opened in September of 2005 as a result of a very creative, creative uh, community collaboration. This is pretty unique. The school district, uh, part, pardon me, the college donated the land and the cable companies provided funding to build it and, and staff it and the city provided the balance. So it's a three-way partnership. It's located at 65 Day Road, directly across from Foothill High School on the campus of the college. Next slide, please. The center has a state-of-the-art soundstage. Next slide, control room. There we are, thank you. Editing rooms, radio station, meeting rooms, and more. It's quite elaborate. Next slide, please. Plus, cameras, lights, tripods, audio, and other media gear to produce programming, all provided by the city. Next slide. The center's also home for KPPQ. Next slide. Thank you. Which is Ventura's public access radio station at 104.1 FM streaming online. Next slide, please. In the back of the center is the, is the ops center. This is where all the computers and equipment are that I don't understand. I will admit that going in. That's why we have an engineer. We're connected to the city. Um, by fiber optic, and, and we're required to keep channel six, channel 15, and KPPQ on the air 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. This meeting is being covered obviously right now. Next slide. We have a mobile production truck and a van. We're used for remote productions. We covered parades, graduations, all kinds of fun stuff. And next slide which is significant, all of the equipment is paid for. There's no outstanding loans, and by the way, our rent is a dollar a year to the college. Next slide. CAPS is funded primarily by cable subscribers in Ventura. I'm one of them, this is my bill. If you look at the bottom on the right, you'll see three lines, four actually, but three, a franchise fee and a paid capital fee. Those funds are gathered from all we cable subscribers, put together and sent to the city to help fund CAPS. And the city uses a portion of this revenue to fund CAPS, not all of it, but a portion of it. Next slide, please. So what do we do? Do quite a few things. We coordinate, manage, record, broadcast, and stream all of the meetings, as well as city committee, not just this meeting, but other meetings throughout this building. Next slide, please. There's a CAPS staff person right now sitting upstairs. You can all wave at Manny. He's there every night, and he's here two hours before your meeting starts, which is significant, to make sure everything works. Next slide, please. This shows how it all breaks down. These are, this is 2022. On the left side are all the meetings we covered. Next is how many meetings there were, how long they took. You realize that some of yours are quite long. I know you're sitting in one. I'm trying not to make it longer tonight. 
It adds in the prep time and the post. The post is, for example, if there's, a, if there's a, an error or there's times, you know, there's a break in the action, if you will, and we can edit it and pull it up. Or if there's been a problem in the, in the, in the recording of the meeting, we can record it and archive it. So we have a, a, a file of every meeting that's held at City Hall. Um, as you can see, the amount of hours was over 500 hours that CAP served the community last year. Next slide. Now, <clears throat> this covers not just meetings in this, in this room, but in, other, in, a, in, the, in the CMR room down the hall, and in the future, perhaps other meetings. They're all connected upstairs. That connects to CAPS, and we put it on the air, but it isn't obviously just for television. It's for streaming, and we're connected back and forth. And because you're now using a hybrid form more often where people can phone in, can, can come in online, you really need somebody upstairs because it isn't just somebody throwing the switch. Next slide, please. The next major area of CAP service is, is productions for the community, not just for the city. We work very closely with the city, with the PIO and comms divisions to identify topics and produce videos for the city all year long. The creative collaboration here is terrific. We meet every week. We go over work in progress and where we're headed. We're all out at the event on Saturday, which was just terrific. Next slide, please. This shows you that in 2022, CAPS produced 62 separate videos and, and covered four events. You can read it. You add it all up on the right, it's 1,500 hours of work. And the reason, it, I, can, I can see your head scrunching why, most of it is editing. It takes 20 to 30 hours to edit a video. For example, we shot on Saturday, we delivered today, we edited over the weekend to have a, a piece done that we could air. And that's what it takes. We covered that. And keep in mind that in, in last year, we we're also under COVID restrictions. So we may be doing even more things this year and going forward. We also, uh, next slide, please. In addition, we shot, I mean, we shot all kinds of things. We had all kinds of wonderful stories. Among them, we did stories on the new, on the new park, uh, the West Side Housing Forum, city, uh, city fire meetings, all the different divisions of, this, of the community come through the comms department, by the way. They don't just call us. We work in coordination with them to get it all done. Add it all up. Next slide, please. We've already seen that. So that, that's what we're talking about in terms of work. Now, move on, please. We don't just work for the city. And the reason is because we do fee-for-service work outside. We have other entities hire us to do productions. These Our primary clients include Ventura County, the school district, and Ventura College. For the county, next slide, please. Yeah, for the county, we produced 22 separate videos last year, seven for the school district, one for the college, and additional videos for other entities in the community. These included voter information videos, election worker training, fire department training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, for the county, all fee for service. They're hiring us to produce them. And recently, we produced the, the uh, CEO's state of the, of the county presentation, including live streaming it in two languages. For the school district, next slide. 
And we'll go to the next slide. And we'll go to the next slide. Thank you, I'm getting ahead of myself. Those are the graduations. Uh, we all know all about that. Next. For the community, <clears throat> um, we're mixed up. Oh, as it's a little bit of a recap. What we do is we manage all the media center, program all three media channels, broadcast and stream, and train CAPS members. We are a membership organization. Next slide, please. We're also looking to do technology. A few years ago, we added a whole new online service, so everything streams. It isn't just on television. I realize I still get television. I pay for it with Spectrum. I realize that. There's a lot of us out there, but most people are watching this event, this meeting, online, and we support that. We're integrated into that service. Uh, next slide, please. The radio station's a big deal. People really wanted a radio station. I will say that I was kind of saying, why, I'm a TV guy, why do I want a radio station? I'm a total believer now. In the last few years, we've trained over 100 DJs in town. They produce 600 hours of original programming. They love it. You, if nothing else, come by and see KPPQ at CAPS. Also, next slide please. As most of you know, in 2018, we produced a documentary on the, on the perfect firestorm that celebrated the firefighters and the families that suffered in that, in that disaster. Um, it won awards, but more important, I think perhaps tonight, we did it, the CAP staff did it on their own. It cost the city nothing. We charged nothing to produce that video. And there were 20 separate stories of the Thomas fire as well. Now, next slide. One thing I have to get a drink of water. This is very cool. <clears throat> Every Friday, students at El Camino High School take over CAPS. They write, produce, and direct their own shows. Many of you have been interviewed by them. This is huge. Um, and they've won awards. In fact, many of the graduates in this program, it's been going on for six years, are now graduates of college in media. And they started here. They started at CAPS. I'm particularly proud of that. Um, in addition to, to producing their own shows, next slide, please. They're, also on, we, they're on our crews all the time. They cover the parades, they cover the graduations. They're always there working hand in hand with our, with our staff. Next, the board of directors. We're overseen by our board of directors of 13. Our chairman is here tonight, Cliff Rodriguez. Uh, four of the board members are elected by the members. Uh, three are appointed by the board and four are representatives of organizations in the community. One from this board, one from the school district, one from the, from, uh, the college, and one from the county. That's the board of 13. Next, it's all done by a very small staff, five full-time people. Let me jump ahead a little bit. The, you know, the, the guy on the top is obvious, he's the least valuable. Next, there's a, or is the manager of the facility, the, the program manager, and the two on the right in the middle are both editors and directors. On the bottom are two part-time people. Manny's the guy on the lower right who's sitting upstairs, and the other gentleman, Phil, is the 
is the instructor of the ECTB program, although he's paid by the school district, and he's also a director at CAPS. Next slide, please. So, what about CAPS? Founded by residents, it's their channel, it's their station, to serve the public and encourage electronic civic engagement, to provide access to information and create a platform for sharing ideas and opinions and creative expression, and that's what they do. Next slide, please. It all adds up, it's not moving. <laughs> it all adds up to our mission statement, which is, and let me read, to create an engaged and informed community through participation in electronic media. And that's what we do, day in and day out, 24 seven. Next slide, please. So, add it up. I won't read it all, you can read it yourself. In 15 years, we've done quite a bit of work. We've created thousands of hours of local programming, directed hundreds of meetings, et cetera, et cetera. Trained a lot of people. A lot of people got their start at CAPS. And we continuously manage the stations 24 seven, 365 days a year. Next slide, please. Oh, that's not a good slide. Okay. Hang on just a second. Well, Rather than me babble on more, let me show you a little bit what we do. So if you will, let's look at a little short video. This is some of the material that CAPS produced last year. So if you'd roll the tape, please.
a handful of the 62 productions we put together for the city last year. In closing, let me say all the information I shared with you tonight is obviously available to you, but more importantly, I would welcome the opportunity to meet with each of you and hear what you would like us to do for you and your constituents in your district. That's why we're here. We're a seat at this table with you, and we can help you tell your stories. I'm honored to be the executive director of CAPS. I get a lot of appreciation and recognition for my job that is done by others. I'm merely one member of a very talented staff, and I'm the newcomer. I've only been here eight years. Many of the people on that screen have been here for much longer, some 10 years and some 18 years. Everyone at CAPS enjoys the creative collaborations with your city staff, and everyone at CAPS is dedicated to serving our community. Thank you for this opportunity to tell our story. Thank you. Any questions for Mr. Davidson before he leaves? Mr. Duran? Not a question, but a, just a thank you. I think I've been a member of CAPS for about 17 years. And um, I just want to let you know what a gift you are to our community. Um, there's been so many times I've been in studio doing different things, but Measure O, I remember that one and how much work you did on that. The workshops you've done for children uh, has just been tremendous. And um, when you gave the, the scholarships out to low-income families to bring their kids there, it was, it was wonderful. The video you did for the city center, um, the, a couple of them that you did actually, I just want to say thank you for capturing the, the history of our city and for doing such a great job. I, I love your team. You do a wonderful job, so thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jim. Madam Deputy Mayor. Thank you, um, Patrick. You all have done such a wonderful job at CAPS. Um, I think for me personally, what touches me the most is um, being able to engage our youth and having them um, have hands-on experience as to what it's like to, to interview, to mic someone, to prep them. And I just so appreciate the work that Phil does also um, very closely with them. But everyone there, um, from staff to volunteers, to you guys just do a phenomenal job. And just thank you for including our youth and, and using their talents, right, to be able to tell our story. So thank you for that. Thank you. And let me add that at the event on Saturday, the drone operator was an ECTV grad. He's studying media in college, and he's great. Councilmember Johnson. Thank you. Uh, in addition to all those things, I, I wanted to add something a little more pragmatic, which is, you know, I've spent I don't know how many hours watching city council meetings from other cities, and what we have is by far the best I've ever seen. And not only that, but to do it really at such a low cost to the city. I, I can't stress enough how fortunate we are to have you and, and not to be paying some uh, private enterprise a lot of money for, a, for, a, for an inferior product. And, and it goes a long way to making our city accessible to everybody. So thank you. Thank you, sir. We feel like we're part of the team. We know we, we, we can, whenever you call, that's, that's why we're here. We're, we're here to serve you and the community. You've been a great part of this community, and uh, 
think from all of us up here, and probably we're speaking for everybody in the city. Thank you very much, Mr. Davidson. Thank you. Thank you all. Closed session report. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We did have closed session, at least began closed session, and uh, we will com complete it at the end of tonight's meeting. Uh, to this point, there is no reportable action. Thank you. City Council communications. Council Member Johnson. Thank you. And while Mr. McDonald pulls up my slides, I just wanted to say a couple things. First, uh, the Deputy Mayor and I were uh, very happy, very fortunate to be able to take a tour of Bissell Artisan Bakery. And I wanted to thank our economic development staff and the Chamber of Commerce and especially Brian Schofield for making that happen. Uh, it's, a, it's a great addition to our local economy. Um, I also wanted to say I thank our staff on putting together the amazing King Tides walk that we had. I wanted to compliment the Deputy Mayor on, on leading a wonderful press conference. Um, and, then, and then we had our second Saturday cleanup. And I will tell you, it was the third Saturday and it was an unusual time, so this time it was only me. But I did get a fair amount of graffiti cleaned up. Uh, and, and in terms of outside committees, I wanted to let my colleagues know I have the honor of serving as the city's representative on VCOG, the Ventura Council of Governments. And I just wanted to remind my colleagues, you may have received an email from Hugh Riley about the uh, voting that, that council members can take part in at, the, at a special meeting that will be Wednesday, 4 p.m. to select the SCAG representative for the area. And our, one of our council members, Liz Campos, is one of the candidates. Uh, it's for all the cities in, in the Ventura County and uh, the way it works is uh, each council member gets a vote. So I would hope that we would have a lot of votes from Ventura in that manner. Thank you. So getting to uh, community events, uh, tomorrow night, 6 to 7, I'll be at Rincon Brewery. And then Wednesday from 7 to 9 p.m. is a college area community council meeting uh, that is held on Zoom. On Monday, January 30th at 11.30 a.m., I'll be at Panera Bread on telephone. And good news, Hill Street Cafe has reopened. On Monday, February 6th, I'll be there at 8 a.m. For, for breakfast if anybody would like to get up early and talk about city council stuff. And, and, you know, because we're not meeting again until February 13th, I've got some more events. So if we could go to the next slide. Sorry about that, just give us one second to get sure. that second slide loaded. Thank you. So, uh, so that you have a little more notice, on Tuesday the 14th, of course, that valent that's Valentine's Day, uh, Pete's Coffee on Victoria, and then Monday on on the 20th, that would be a night that this city council is not meeting, Rincon Brewery. Uh, 
that's a little out of order, but uh, you can see the date there for the second Saturday cleanup. We'll meet at the water store at Victoria and Walston. And then just finishing it out for the month of February on the 28th, 6 p.m., Snapper Jacks on Telegraph. This is a lot. Now, I just I wanted to point something out. Uh, you can find me on Facebook or Instagram for details. I've got my phone number there. And uh, I've set up a nice calendar on mikeforventura.com with uh, lots of events and details on them. Could we get the next slide, please? So I wanted to plug the College Area Community Council coming up on the 25th. Uh, we'll be talking about the Maple Court development. Uh, I believe the developer will be there. County Supervisor Matt Levere will be there. And CACC member Russell Richardson will give an update on the new community project called The Gleaning. Uh, those happen the fourth Wednesday of each month, and you can see the website there. And then the last slide, please. And again, just a plug for mikeforventura.com. You can see I've got lots of events, and it's, it gets a little tiring sometimes trying to post them all on social media. But you can always go there, and I've also got a place now where you can sign up and get email updates for events and things like that. And those would conclude my comments. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Councilmember Compost. I have a slide coming up also. Um, I would ask that we adjourn tonight in honor of three members of the West Side community, um, Augustine de Paz and Jesus Aaron Arachiga were two young men ages 18 and 19, wonderful students, hardworking volunteers in the community. They really represented the West Side well. They were killed this month in an automobile accident, tragically. And everybody on the west side misses their vitality. And the third one that we lost is Lori Flack, who was one of the core 10 founding members of the West Side Community Council. Um, she hasn't been active for a while because of aging, but we want to honor her work with the west side. And then uh, District 1 will be always meeting in the same place, the Avenue Library. For now, it will be from 3 to 6 p.m. every Sunday, and not in the front door of the library, but the entrance on Simpson near Venture Avenue, the back door of the library. And everybody's welcome to come to talk about anything to do with the city or the District 1 politics or District 1 exciting activities. Thank you. Councilmember McReynolds. Uh, first off, I'd like to wish everybody a happy Lunar New Year. So understand it's the year of the rabbit. Obviously, we're all aware of the tragic events that occurred in Monterey Park on Saturday. Uh, I would like to adjourn our meeting in memory of those 11 uh, that lost their lives in the nine. Um, and then I would ask that uh, as appropriate, any assistance that we can offer the city of Monterey Park, you know, that, that we're there for them. Uh, additionally, uh, so again, it's tragic events. Um, we had a, Deputy Mayor Sanchez and I had an opportunity to meet with the uh, East Ventura Community Council. I see the secretary is here tonight. Uh, they are in need of leadership. Uh, they are looking for uh, a, a chair. So uh, we promised that we would plug that out there. So if anybody's interested, uh, please reach out to uh, Deputy Mayor Sanchez Palacios or myself, uh, and we'll be happy to connect with, with you. Thank you. Ms. Deputy Mayor. 
Thank you very much. Um, yes, I, I also um, would like to adjourn in memory of um, those who were tragically um, killed this uh, over the weekend in Monterey. Um, wanted just to give a quick report back in regards to the King Tides event. Um, again, thank you uh, to everyone involved, um, particularly our staff who put an event um, together that, I mean, easily attended by 40 plus people. Um, that included our, our community, um, our you know neighboring um, elected officials, our from congressional to senate to to state to uh, county supervisors and even um, neighboring cities. And want to thank my colleagues, um, Councilmember Campos and Councilmember uh, Halter and Johnson, who attended as well. And I think it's just a I think magnificent that we can rally around our community to learn about what it is that we as a coastal city have to um, look forward to sometimes. And it's always good to know that we have uh, the support needed in order for us to be able to um, take care of our community. So I wanna thank also Beacon and Surfrider, the community organizations who were there um, in support as well. And then lastly, I did want to point out uh, that uh, Councilmember um, McReynolds and myself, uh, we are offering up sort of like coffee sessions, sidewalk sessions, office hours, if you will, um, at Chumash Park for the east end of Ventura on February 11th at 9 in the morning. We'll be there just to meet and greet and hopefully get some good conversations going. And as he mentioned, uh, the East Ventura Community Council is in need of volunteers and just uh, people to step up to the plate and we're hoping to be able to do some outreach and just connect with our community. So that's all I have. Thank you. Councilmember Duran. I would just take, uh, like to take this opportunity to thank the County of Ventura for the shelter that they put out at the fairgrounds. Um, we didn't have to um, activate our shelter. Um, because they did four nights and it was just a wonderful thing. They had 180 people actually signed up. They had 110 people stayed on the, on the average every night. Um, there was clean clothes given, showers, uh, meals, three meals a day, and uh, just a warm place to stay. And I have to tell you, the people that experienced um, the floods were greatly, they greatly appreciated that. So I just wanted to say thank you to them and I also wanted to remind everyone that there is a Montalvo Community Council meeting on February the 7th, and they are also looking for members, and I, I'll tell you, they have a wonderful team, and uh, there's gonna be a lot of things that are gonna be discussed on the 7th, so I wanna make that open to everybody. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Lastly, um, I could not make the King's Tide event, and I apologize for that. I was in Hawaii, in Maui, and while I was over there, I got to go to the fire station um, that dealt with the tragedy that we had last year of a firefighter that died over on Maui. And I gave some gifts to their uh, fire chief over there. And of all the irony, the fire chief of Maui, his last name is Ventura. And uh, he and his staff did an unbelievable job of helping that family during um, really tough times. So from all of us, I told um, everybody in the fire department over there, thank you very much. And with that, uh, city manager communications. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. As the clerk will bring up the PowerPoint slide here shortly. 
Uh, the first time on the list is the winter storm update. I'm going to pause on that for a second and I'll ask Mac Douglas to come up in just a few minutes. I'm going to cover the other items first and we'll come back to that. Uh, Councilmember Duran mentioned the foul weather shelter. Uh, it, it, it was really well utilized. We had a total of five nights of activation serving 57 unhoused individuals and families. Um, that's for our own foul weather shelter, excuse me. And then in addition to that, we had the um, the county hosted a foul weather shelter at the fairgrounds January 13th through the 17th. And about 130 people were served through that program. So, uh, of course, as uh, Councilmember Duran mentioned, thank you to the fairgrounds. Uh, Stacy Brianda and, and team really um, paved the way for the county to come in and do a great job and, and uh, house some people during the weather event. Uh, the next item I'm very excited about, you've heard me talk at the last few city council meetings about this thing called uh, Insta Permits. It's actually online and uh, we're taking in those permits now. We processed 56 instant permits just in the month of January alone. So um, that's going really well. Uh, we'll probably see more traction on that. We're holding uh, workshops on how to actually submit permits for these instant permits. Uh, we've held one so far and there'll be another one on Wednesday night at 6 p.m. here here in the community meeting room. As a reminder, the point in time count is tomorrow morning. Uh, I signed up for the 6 a.m. shift. I, I should have looked at the uh, council agenda first before doing that, but I will be here nonetheless tomorrow at 6 a.m. Um, so that's taking place tomorrow. Of course, that's the annual count of uh, those experiencing homelessness that takes place every year. Uh, and then uh, next to last is our upcoming city council meetings. We'll be back here, not back here, excuse me, on Saturday, January 28th. I have mentioned in previous meetings that we'd be at the Ventura County Credit Union. Uh, I'd like to announce a change of venue that will take place at the Museum of Ventura County on Main Street. So again, that's the Museum of Ventura County on Main Street on Saturday morning, January 28th, beginning at 9 a.m. And then on February 13th, we'll be back here in this room, same time, 6 p.m., uh, for a variety of items for the council to consider, one of which will be the council goals adoption. And now I will invite up our emergency services manager, Mac Douglas, to give an update on the storm response. Good evening, Honorable Mayor, City Council members, staff, and members of the public. I've been asked to provide a brief update with respect to our storm response and recovery efforts. <clears throat> on the evening of January 9th, the Ventura City and Ventura County Fire Departments responded to a call regarding an individual later identified as Miss Christina Lorenzen, who was trapped in the Santa Clara River bottom. A swift water rescue effort, including a search and rescue team and a helicopter was launched, but these resources were unable to locate Miss Lorenzen. On January 10th, the person later identified as Miss Lorenzen was found deceased in a small wooden structure located in the riverbed. Since January 4th, um, as several speakers have mentioned, the foul weather shelter program managed by the city housing staff has been activated three times. These three activations have totaled five nights in duration and provided temporary housing to 57 unhoused individuals and families, in addition to providing several hundred meals and numerous stay warm packs. In addition, city staff conducted both general and targeted outreach to inform members of the public of the availability of a county foul weather shelter that was made available at Seaside Park from January 13th to the 17th during our most recent storm. The population of that shelter reached a peak of 130 clients at one time and approximately 90% of those folks were from Ventura. 
The city has suffered significant damage at several sites as a result of storm and tidal activity between January 5th and 10th, most notably including the Ventura Pier, which has lost eight pilings and numerous other horizontal support members. Uh, the pier remains closed as of now, uh, but repairs are underway at this time. Two small seawalls located in the Pierpont area at the, green, at the end of Greenock and Nathan Lanes were partially destroyed by high waves. The city docks located at the Leo Rollins Sailing Center suffered severe cracking and dislocation of their anchoring brackets also due to those high surf conditions. Several tons of debris have been washed out, were washed out to sea during the storms and have washed up on city beaches, creating a public health and safety concern. Several or similar debris has also clogged the San Hone Road drainage outfall adjacent to Harbor Boulevard. The Coastal Commission has granted the city an emergency permit to remove the bulk of the debris from the beach, an effort that is expected to begin later this week. Harbor Boulevard itself remains closed between the pier and San Hone Road as city staff work to remove mud and debris from the roadway and also to allow access for heavy equipment to, that, that will be involved in beach cleanup and also cleaning out the San Juan outfall. The Buenaventura Golf Course suffered widespread damage to, to most structures at the facility as well as the turf itself as a result of massive flooding that occurred when the Santa Clara River overtopped its banks on the evening of January 9th. Multiple resources including city staff, camper sports staff, contract personnel, and crews on loan from CAL FIRE are working diligently to remove silt deposits from the course to save as much of the turf as possible. City risk management staff are working to file insurance claims to help defray the cost of rebuilding the facilities that I've mentioned. In addition to the public property damaged as a result of the storms, several private, private properties were significantly impacted by the storm, most notably the Ventura Beach RV Park, which was entirely flooded by the Ventura River on the afternoon and evening of January 9th. On Thursday, January 19th, uh, city emergency management staff and public works staff hosted a damage assessment team comprised of both State Office of Emergency Services and Federal Emergency Management Agency personnel. This team is working to document the damage sustained across Ventura County in order to determine if the major disaster declaration already in place for many essential coast counties should be expanded to include Ventura County. Should the major disaster declaration be changed to include Ventura County, it would mean that significant federal resources, including potential FEMA and Small Business Administration funding, would become available to residents as well as to the city itself. I'm available to answer any questions that you have. Uh, Mr. Douglas, I had the, I don't know if it's an honor, but I got to visit the, the Buena uh, golf course and I couldn't imagine the devastation. So when I went into the pro shop, uh, it looked like to me that the mud and water was up maybe as high as four feet and everything in the pro shop pretty much was destroyed? That's correct, Mayor. Um, the, pro, the pro shop actually sits a little bit higher than the snack bar um, where the water was highest. When I was out there most recently on Thursday, you could still see the water lines on the, on, on the windows, which were about up to chest height, so I'd est estimate that at five feet. Yeah, for the, my fellow city council members, so the golf course I think is about 100 square acres and you could see a tiny bit of green and everything else was mud and water. And what was most surprising, I was there I think the day after the water came through, or maybe a day and a half afterwards, you, you couldn't go very far because the mud was so deep. Um, the only thing that would indicate that it was a golf course is that some of the 
18 holes still had their flag stick in what we call greens, but they were covered with mud. So let's keep our fingers crossed that we can somehow resuscitate uh, the Buena Golf Course. So and thank you very much uh, for the report. It's been a it's been a tough couple of weeks for all of us. Thank you, Mayor. Thank you, Mr. Douglas. Several of you know that we hired uh, Mac Douglas right before the Christmas holiday and, and Mother Nature put him to work right away. So his timing was excellent in that respect. Uh, in addition to Mr. Douglas, I do want to thank staff throughout the organization, in addition to our county partners that have really stepped up to the plate over the past several weeks. Uh, I could name every department, but I'll highlight a few. Parks and Recreation, Public Works, the Finance Department, uh, Ventura Water, Emergency Services, and Police and Fire. Really, this has been an all-hands-on-deck uh, sort of situation. So, and it, it has not stopped. Even though the rains have, have stopped, um, the damage and the assessing of what's been destroyed uh, is still ongoing. So, more to come, and we'll continue to report out. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Any questions? Okay, on to consent items. We have 14 consent items. Are there any items that need to be pulled? Items with questions or items with comments? Mr. McReynolds. A comments only concerning item 11. Um, item 11. Thank you. Mr. Duran. Uh, I have questions on um, eight, uh, number eight and 13. Any others? Okay, let's, do we, should we start with number eight? Comments on number eight or questions? Questions, actually. Um, I wanted to find out in with the the exams for the for oh uh, hi hello council want, sorry about that. Or I I just wanted to ask a, a question in regards to uh, I was just putting the numbers together. Um, is there enough money that you're asking for to cover all the firemen per year for those? Yes, we've worked through finance. We've worked through the, the entity that we're working with to have the NFBA compliant physicals for the entire fire department. Um, and we've worked, like I said, with finance to make sure that that's actually going to cover the full physical for what is needed to be compliant with OSHA and NFPA for the department for each of those years. Okay, so that covers all the employees. Do supervisors also uh, go through that same physical? Absolutely, because our supervisors are field-level fire captains. And so they're part of the engine company that's out there 24-7, so they're very much expected to do the exact same thing with the same gear and everything. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. Comments or question on number 11? Uh, so regarding the uh, skate park grant, uh, so I was on the Parks and Rec Commission the first time that we applied for it. We didn't get it, but we did do it on the second. I just wanted to make sure that we're going to involve the uh, Parks and Rec Commission and the Arts and Cultural uh, Commission in terms of as that design goes through. So just as much as we can include them, uh, that would be great. So those are my comments. On and just great job on getting that grant. Okay. Uh, and questions on 13. Could I go back to 11? Sure. Let's go back to 11. Uh, I just had a question in regards to it being a uh, design-build contract and why it wasn't a design-bid-build build contract. Thank you, Councilmember Ground. Mr. Mayor, if I can invite out uh, our city engineer, Peter Shade, to come up and address that comment. Thank you. 
Good evening, Mayor, City Council. For the record, my name is Peter Shade. I'm the Assistant Public Works Director and City Engineer. Um, the question, I think, was the, the uh, contract method. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, why it was a design build versus a di design bid build? There, there were a couple of reasons for that. One, one is that this was uh, to be paid for under a grant that had a very aggressive timeline. And uh, design build gives you the ability to continue designing while you're building and so that you can accelerate the timeline. The other reason is, is that skate parks generally are design build type of projects because the people that are doing the construction work are also the designers. These are, these are folks that you know, grew up skating and, and so they, they know, you know what a skate park should look like, what's fun about skate parks. And so they're, they're doing really both, both sides of the work. Thank you. Sure. Are we done with 11? On to 13? Yes, it, it said that there was irregular, irregularities uh, in the bid process. Just curious what those were. Again, I'll invite back up either Public Works Director Phil Nelson or Peter Shady. Uh, yes, could you please repeat the question? It said in the uh, report, in the staff report, that there were irregularities in the bid process, and I was just curious what those irregularities were. Um, to be honest with you, I, I'm not familiar with what irregularities there were. Um, I, can, I, can check, I can check and get, uh, get back to you at a future meeting. Okay, thank you. Other questions or comments? Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yep, said. Go ahead, Councilmember Johnson. If I may, if I could ask Mr. Hagland about that, I believe, and, and this Councilmember Duran, waive all minor bid irregularities. Is is that the language? Is that not just sort of standard for these standard language for these things? Typically, it is, uh, Councilmember Johnson. Uh, they waive the big bid irregularities in the event that there are some that that were to come up. Any other questions here? Mr. City Clerk, any comments received by email? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have uh, one speaker tonight, and uh, we did receive communications via email as well, and the communications packet, supplemental packet, has been posted. Glenn Overly is our speaker. Glenn, go ahead and unmute yourself. Michael, can you hear me? We can, yes. So my comment tonight, council members, is on item number four, consent item. And first I should probably say that the King Tide event my wife attended and couldn't stop talking about it. I missed much of my football games on Saturday because she couldn't stop gabbing how great that was. Uh, on item number four, if prior council hasn't had an opportunity, you should review public work director Phil Nelson's um, analysis which was created for the prior council did an excellent job on covering what was um, involved in that but my question tonight is probably for our city attorney or for our city manager besides the cost of $255,000 will the following questions be addressed number one what will the lawsuit cost if SCE opposes eminent domain process Number two, 
what will be the approximate purchase price of the assets formerly listed by public director Bill Nelson? And number three, what will the employees and equipment cost to service this asset if we are successful in our eminent domain purchase? Those are my comments on number four. Michael, would you like me to go to number seven? Please, thank you. On consent item number seven. Former council member Brown has given much time to our city over the years. She's no longer a council person, she's a citizen, but I want to applaud her for her efforts over the years. My, my comments tonight are, why not allow another citizen an opportunity to serve on the GPAC committee and give back to the community? Many, many citizens have followed and participated in past GPAC meetings. Perhaps new blood will help the process move along faster. There would still be cohesiveness using citizens who have been involved and attended the process from the onset. Council should want to engage citizens and the public and allow them to use this opportunity as a resource. Filling GPAC with a citizen, not a council member, would do exactly that. Might our city be better served with a citizen to fill Mr. I'm sorry, council member McReynolds vacancy. And those are my comments. Thank you. And Mr. Mayor, that concludes our public comment on consent items. Mr. City Manager, you want to respond to anything? I can take the second half regarding item number four, and I, I'm going to reserve the first question for uh, the city attorney about the lawsuit costs. But in terms of the purchase price, uh, part of the approach was to ascertain exactly that, is come up with an estimate that would be reliable based on a, uh, I'll say, a sampling of our streetlight inventory so we could get to what we believe to be a, a pretty close approximation of our streetlight assets. Um, in terms of what the ultimate purchase price will be, um, that's an unknown right now, but that's what that task is essentially uh, allowing us to do. Uh, perhaps the first part, again, uh, Andy might be in a better position to address that. Mr. Mayor, um, Mr. Alicon, Mr. Overly, um, at, at this stage, the city isn't prepared to discuss the cost of that uh, of litigation, if there is any. The council hasn't provided any direction uh, for litigation at this stage. All the city is doing for the council's direction is conducting an inventory of the assets. Thank you. Councilmember Johnson, did you have? Uh, yes, thank you, Mayor. I, I wanted to thank former Councilmember Brown for being willing to serve on the GPAC committee, and I, I think it's it's good to keep as many people in a stable position as we can for something like that. With that, I would move the consent calendar. Do I have a second? Second. Comments? Then let's vote. Mr. City Clerk. All right, on the consent items, you can go ahead and enter your vote now. And just a reminder to lock your vote. Okay, all votes have been entered. 
Seven ayes, and the motion carries. Thank you. Um, moving on to a public hearing item, Mr. City Clerk, can you go over the appeal process, um, how that will be handled tonight, please? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. While we get that slide pulled up, I did just want to remind, and for the benefit of our new council here, this is a quasi-judicial hearing. What that means is that these are proceedings in which the city council is required to make findings based on evidentiary record as to the entitlement. Mr. City Clerk, does that mean um, city council needs to divulge any conversations or emails that were received on this? Yeah, so I'm gonna pull up the slide in just a second and go over what our procedures are gonna be, and these procedures can be found in our city council protocols. Okay, so since this is a, a quasi-judicial hearing, uh, what the first step will be is for city council to disclose any ex parte communications. Ex parte communications are any communications, what must be disclosed is who you spoke with in regards to the project, and what, basically the substance of your conversation. What we will do next is the mayor will open the public hearing. Once the public hearing is opened, we're gonna hear a staff presentation. Council members will then have an opportunity to ask questions based off of the staff presentations. And then we're gonna hear from the appellant first for 10 minutes, and then the applicant will be given an opportunity to present for 10 minutes as well. Once we've heard from the appellant and the applicant, we're gonna go ahead and take public comment. Once public comment has concluded, the applicant and the appellant both, in the same order as before, will be given five minutes as a rebuttal to any, uh, anything that they've heard so far. So again, the appellant and the applicant will then both have five minutes for their rebuttal. We'll then turn it back to the council for final questions from council members. Once the final questions have been asked, the mayor will close the public hearing. Just a reminder, once the public hearing is closed, no additional questions can be asked, and then we'll go to council deliberation and action as our final step. Do we have any questions before we get started? Mr. Mayor, if I could just add something to that as well. I would love you to add something. Thank you. Uh, I think it's, it's crucial in this type of hearing that because it's quasi-judicial that we keep the comments and the questions separate. So during the questions section, it would be advisable not to provide any comments about your thoughts or feelings until the public hearing is closed and then you can provide those comments. Thank you. All right, then I'll go ahead and turn it over to staff. I'm sorry, before we go into the staff presentation, do we need to? Yes, that's right. So if there are any ex parte communications that need to be disclosed by council members, now would be the appropriate time to do so. Um, I'll, I'll start off. I think I received two or three emails, and you're gonna ask me who they're from, aren't you? Um, and did everybody get the same two or three emails? Was it, it was two or three, is that correct? Does anybody know off the top of their head who they were from? So that, I, or did you? So if, the, if it was a communication that was submitted to the entire council, then that has been included in tonight's supplemental packet. Okay. That packet has been posted on the website and is publicly available. If there were individual conversations with council members from either a representative of the applicant or the appellant, that would be uh, the disclosure. Okay. 
Is there any disclosures that need to be made? Thank you for straightening all that out. Staff, let's go. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good evening, Honorable Mayor and City Council. My name is Erica Hong, and I'm a senior planner in the Community Development Department. I'm joined tonight by Principal Planner Jamie Peltier and Acting Community Development Director Netta Zayer. The project before you tonight is the appeal of the Fritch Residence Project that was approved with modified conditions at the September 29, 2022 Director's Hearing. Next slide, please. The project site is a flag lot located on the south side of Knob Hill Lane within the Ondolondo area of the Poinsettia community. The site is approximately 0.4 acres and is zoned for single-family residential. A previous one-story single-family home existed on the site but was burned down during the Thomas Fire in 2017. Next slide, please. Here are some photos of the surrounding area as viewed from the project site. The project site is surrounded by other one to two story residential properties. Next slide, please. The Thomas Fire Ordinance provides several provisions for the rebuild of a previous one story residential structure. Staff summarized the buy right provisions and the modification permit provisions in the table. Per the Thomas Fire Ordinance, property owners may buy right rebuild the previous legal non-conforming structure like for like with limited flexibility provisions that allow up to a 10% increase in the total floor area of the residence in a manner that does not increase any non-conformity, allow construction up to a height of 15 feet as measured from the previous existing finished floor, allow preservation of legal non-conforming lot coverage, and allow reorientation of ridgelines, roof pitches, and configuration of the building footprint. Through the modification permit regulation, a primary residence may request to be expanded up to a maximum 25% of the destroyed residence floor area in a manner that does not increase any nonconformity, and a one-story primary residence may be rebuilt to a height above 15 feet to a maximum of 19 feet the previous residence was non-conforming to height. A property can forego the use of the Thomas Fire Ordinance and choose to rebuild using the current zoning standards per the municipal code, including requesting variances from zoning requirements such as lot coverage, setbacks, and height. The previous residence on site was built while the property was still within Ventura County and was legal non-conforming to the city's zoning ordinance. If the residence rebuilt utilizing the current zoning standards, a structure of approximately four feet in height would be permitted per the hillside height regulations. The property would have needed to apply for a height variance to construct a single story residence. Next slide, please. The project was originally presented at director's hearing on August 25th, 2022. Staff recommended approval based on a visit to the project site and review of photos submitted by the neighbor of the abutting primary residential structure. At that time, the director continued the hearing to September 29th to allow the director and staff to physically visit the abutting primary residential structure to observe the views in relation to the project. At the following hearing on September 29th, Staff detailed the changes to the project and the site visit to the abutting primary residential structure. Staff recommended approval of the modification permit as requested. After further discussion, consideration, deliberation, 
and factoring in the site visit to the abutting primary residential structure to observe the views, the director approved the modification permit with modified conditions relating to height, which staff will further detail in the following slide. On October 3, 2022, the appellant, Mr. William Bredberg, submitted an appeal. The appellant cited that the protectable private view from the living room, dining room, and patio of the residence located at 194 Knob Hill Lane would be completely blocked or significantly impaired by the approved modification permit. Next slide, please. Shown in the top set of images is the project that was initially proposed. The proposal was to rebuild the single-family residence to a height of 18 feet and three and a half inches from the previous finished floor. For homes reconstructed on a pre-existing level site, the finished floor is the prevailing floor level served by the prior main entrance to the residence. The prevailing floor level is the lowest original floor level to grade with the most widespread use. Please note the chimney designs in the top image. After the first hearing, the applicant modified the proposal to change the chimneys in design and lowered the ridge height to 17 feet and 11 and a half inches, which is shown in the middle set of images. The images at the bottom detail the community development director's approval of the modification permit. The director approved the project with the modified condition to lower all ridge lines other than the ridge line over the entryway to 551.8 in elevation. Staff tried to visually show this change by placing the red arrow in between the height of the lower ridge line and the entryway ridge line in the middle and bottom set of images. A condition of approval was included in the director's hearing modification permit resolution indicating the maximum elevation points for the rebuilt project. This is the project that was appealed. Next slide, please. The City Council is reviewing this project de novo, which means the City Council is reviewing the project in its entirety and can make any decision the Council sees fit and is not bound to any conclusions made at prior hearings. With that being said, the project that is being appealed before Council today is an approved modification permit per the Thomas Fire Ordinance to rebuild a single-family residence with a limited expansion of 24% and a maximum upper ridgeline height of 17 feet and 11 and a half inches with a lower ridgeline height maximum of 16 feet and three and five eighth inches. Staff would like to note that the applicant submitted plans indicating a lower ridgeline height maximum of 16 feet and two and three quarter inches, which is slightly lower than what the project was approved for. The project meets all required standards of the R1 single family residential zone, such as setbacks and lot coverage, and is within the allowed 25% floor area expansion limit, and also falls within the allowed 19 foot height limit of the modification permit regulation. Next slide, please. A required finding of the Thomas Fire Ordinance for the approval of a modification permit for rebuild proposal is that the proposal does not significantly impair a protectable private view from the viewing area of an abutting primary residential structure. Now please bear with me as I read the definitions from the Thomas Fire Ordinance. A protectable private view means a far and distant view of ocean waters, the Channel Islands, or coastline as viewed from the viewing area of the primary residence, but not the views within the city of urban areas, hillsides, agricultural lands, or views of any lands located outside the city in the unincorporated county. 
The Thomas Fire Ordinance defines viewing area as the portion of the structure that constitutes the primary living area of the house, which is the living room, family room, dining room, kitchen, or outdoor patio immediately adjacent to the house. Next slide, please. After the final director's hearing, the applicants re-erected the story poles on the project site to reflect the approved modification permit to provide a visual aid of the silhouette of the rebuilt home. On December 15, 2022, staff conducted another site visit to the appellant's home to take photos of the relationship between the story poles of the approved rebuild home located at 196 Knob Hill Lane and the protectable private view from the appellant's budding primary residential structure located at 194 Knob Hill Lane. The photos that will be shown in the next slides were taken in the patio, living, dining, and kitchen areas of the abutting primary residential structure. All photos were taken at a height of four feet and 10 inches standing and three feet and five and a half inches seated. Next slide, please. Here is a photo of the patio area from the appellant seating area. During staff's visit to the appellant's home, the appellant indicated the general seating areas that were frequently used, so staff took photos from these locations, amongst others. For presentation purposes, staff added a yellow line to further accentuate the ridge lines of the rebuilt home. Please note that this photo was taken while seated. Next slide, please. Here is another view from the same location in the same seated position. The progression of the photos of, view, of the view moves from left to right. Please bear with us as staff will begin to slowly scroll through the photos for City Council's review. Please note the location and seated or standing position of the photos in the top left corner of the photos. These are the same photos that were provided in the staff report to Council. Next photo, please. 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 Next photo. Next photo, please. Next photo, please. Next photo, please. Next photo. Next photo. And here are some photos from the living room area. Next photo, please. 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 Next photo. Next photo, please. Next photo, please. Next photo, please. Next photo, please. And here are photos from the dining room area. Next photo, please. 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 
Next photo, please. Next photo, please. Next photo, please. And here are photos from the kitchen area. Next photo. And this concludes the last of our photos. Next slide, please. Staff recommends the City Council, one, determine that the new construction or conversion of small structures, Class Three exemption of the CEQA of the California Environmental Quality Act, CEQA guidelines, applies to the project, and two, adopt a resolution denying the appellant's appeal and upholding the Community Development Director's approval of the Thomas Fire Modification Permit. Thank you. That concludes staff's presentation. We're available for any questions. Questions? Councilmember Johnson. Thank you, and, and I want to thank staff for putting together uh, a very comprehensive packet of information for this public hearing. Um, I have a question. The hillside height limit, how how would that operate to effectively require a home to not exceed four feet on this property? What would be the what would be the basis and the, the height regulation that would be the constraint there? <clears throat> the hillside height. Pardon me. The hillside height ordinance in the zoning code is based on the lot, um, the slope of the lot. So depending on the type of lot it is and the slope of it, you measure height from different areas. So you will average the front or the rear depending on which slope is higher and it will, the outcome will end up being um, <clears throat> different depending on the slope of the lot. After doing the averages of the slopes of this lot um, and then the allowed height to go up, um, it ends up being around four feet. And this is common in different areas throughout the hillside. We have seen other um, sites that have experienced this two to four feet um, just due to, to the slopes of the lots. Thank you. Um, out of curiosity, would there be any position on this lot where they could build it to 15 feet and and fall within the hillside height ordinance? No, just because it would be the, we're taking averages of the lot, so the average of, of slope of the lot would not allow anywhere of the lot to, to erect a, anything more than four feet. Okay, thank you. Uh, I, I can't say I totally understand it, but I, I don't think it really applies. I, I was trying to get a sense of um, what some thinking was behind the hillside height ordinance, which of course was meant to forestall some of these problems. If I may try to also clarify, Councilmember Johnson and Council, so the hillside height um, ordinance, how it was written is basically it takes uh, several points on the rear of the lot along the real proper, rear property line and then several points along the front property line and then uh, takes those heights and averages them and basically says, well, here's your slope Here's the height you get based on that. For um, properties that have really steep slopes, it does end up that they have very limited 
um, heights. So really depending on the topography of your existing parcel, you could end up with uh, allowable height of 20 feet or you could end up with an allowable height of four feet. There's been, as uh, Ms. Peltier explained, there have been many variances that we have processed along the hillsides of other properties who followed standard code and had to do administrative variances through public hearing to get extra heights. Thank you. Could we see the, the uh, site plan again? Thank you. And, and so it, it, it's already, as, as we look at this, really quite close to the front, uh, front of the parcel. Is that correct? So although it's a steep lot, it's, it's not that it could be moved forward and, uh, and lowered that way. Is that correct? Because of the front setback requirements and everything? So if you see on to the left-hand side of the site plan, uh, that is actually the driveway. So the property is a flag lot. Um, so because it's a flag lot, uh, it meets the required front setback from the driveway entrance right there. And so it far exceeds the front setback requirement. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, Ms. Ayer, um, in, our, in the staff report, there was uh, a chart that I emailed you about and I, and I wanted to, to go over this. I may not be the only person that had this question. But what we see are the requirements, um, the, really the allowances of what you would have for buy right um, with a modification permit and what the, the project is actually asking for. Um, in the floor area allowed, what caught my eye was that under the buy right, or using the Thomas Fire Ordinance by right, it would be 6,500 square feet um, which uh, is obviously not 10%. And it's more than what would be allowed under a modification permit. Can you explain why it would be more than what would be allowed under the modification permit? Thank you, Councilmember Johnson. So the uh, Thomas Fire by right permit does have, as um, Ms. Hong mentioned, has limited flexibility for deviation of non-conforming situations. So um, the hillsides and those that were destroyed by the Thomas Fire residents are all, the underlying zoning is R1. And so the basic zoning standard or the standard code is that a um, R1 site can have a 35% lot coverage and has certain setbacks that it has to meet. Many of these homes that were constructed that predated our zoning that were built in, in the county um, did not meet these zoning standards, so they were non-conforming by nature. They were built prior to those standards being applied. The Thomas Fire Ordinance did allow that if a structure was damaged by the Thomas Fire that it could build to its non-conformity, and it allowed some flexibility. So if it had a non-conforming setback of 10 feet when it was supposed to have 20 feet, that they could do a 10% increase of that non-conformity as long as they did not increase its non-conformity. Um, if it didn't have any non-conformity, meaning it met all of its setbacks prior, it could be built based on the current zoning requirements, which is a lot coverage of 35%. Uh, this residence did not have non-conforming setbacks, and 
Um, therefore, if it were to build under the 35% law coverage standard, they could have a 6,527 square foot uh, residence given the size of the lot. Thank you. And why under the modification permit would it allow fewer square feet? The modification permit does did have restrictions on how much it could it could expand under that permit type. So they did have different permit types and what was allowed in each of those permit types. Thank you. And so it's meant to be a trade-off. Correct. So they to uh, because they have more wiggle room perhaps under a modification permit. It's not in every aspect of the project. Is that correct? Um, correct. They had tiers of permit processes of what a buy right, what a modification, and what a substantial conformity was based off Thomas Fire regulations. Thank you so much. And then I have a question, this may be for Mr. Hagland, about the private protectable views. Um, obviously a private protectable view is not an all or nothing proposition in this case. Uh, is there any uh, information in our ordinances or in case law and, and um, deciding when you when you're impacting 10 degrees of a 45 degree view or 90 degrees of a 180 degree view is there anything quantifiable that the council can use in its deliberations uh, mr. mayor uh, councilmember Johnson no there's not so the, the in, I think the ordinance was intentionally drafted vague to give some flexibility to the decision maker but there's not really any qualifying case law or guidance on what how you define that. Thank you, those are my questions. Councilmember Halter, followed by Councilwoman Campo. Uh, question, there we go, <laughs> okay. Um, both these lots, 194 and 196, both were um, burned from the Thomas Fire, correct? So they both had existing houses on it? That right. is correct. Okay. Um, and the one is rebuilt today, 194. Yes, that is correct. Uh, the, the director's approved height for the subject property, how does that compare to the height prior to the fire? So as compared, the previously existing home on the property at 196 Knob Hill Lane was approximately 12 feet in height. Um, the approved project um, per the director's hearing, the highest ridge line is at 17 feet approximately, and the lower ridge line is approximately at 16 feet. Okay. So 12 feet, would that have been uh, a flat top um, style home? Generally, I believe it was flat with uh, gradual ridges. Okay. And um, as far as what we're allowed to decide tonight, is it recommendations or is it all or nothing? Council Member Holter, when you mean all or nothing, do you mean approve the modification permit or not? Correct. Um, so if the council decides to deny the appellant's appeal and uphold the director's decision, it would be approving what he approved. Uh, if the council denies to uh, or decides to uphold the appellant's decision um, and uh, overturn the director's position or decision, it would basically be, be he would ha the applicant would have to go back 
to the drawing board and start again. The council also has the ability to make modifications at this hearing as well, or um, continue the item and bring it back with further modifications. You are not bound to the decisions of uh, the community development director. You can make modifications at this, per this hearing as well. Was there some consideration given to the grading of this property? Yes, um, in the last director's hearing, the former community development director did inquire about the grading. Um, I believe the applicants will be able to provide you with more information regarding that. Great, thank you staff, I appreciate it. That's all my questions for now. Councilmember Campos. Uh, Councilmember Halter pulled some of the questions that I had, but the previous existing property of that's not yet constructed. When was that built? Do we know? The one that was destroyed? The previous home was built in 1968 while it was in the jurisdiction of the county. Right. And what about the appellant's property? Staff does not have it, that information at hand right now, but we can certainly look into it. Councilmember Campos, you can also ask the appellant as, as well if they have information about what year their previous structure was built uh, and, and or when they built their rebuild. Okay, thank you. Other questions? Okay, now we move to the appellant presentation. That's right, so we'll go ahead and bring up the appellant now, and just as a reminder again, we'll put your presentation up and you have 10 minutes. Honorable Mayor, City Council. Um, excellent questions, by the way. Thank you for being so thoughtful about that. Um, so I have three main points I'd like to make in this appeal. First is regarding the due diligence. When we purchased our home, I make this point because the issue came up uh, in our previous hearings. <clears throat> so when we first considered the purchase of our home at 194 Knob Hill Lane, we were aware that the lot below us would soon be built on. And since we were purchasing based primarily on the ocean view, we were very interested in knowing if someone could build below us and block our ocean view. We first asked our builder, seemed logical, uh, who has built over a dozen homes following the guidelines of the Thomas Fire Ordinance, he was the first to inform us of the ordinance which limits the heights of new builds to 15 feet in order to protect the ocean views of all the residents in the affected areas. Next, we spoke with a two different architects who have designed homes in the area. One actually designed his, home, his own home in the area. Uh, he confirmed that the Thomas Fire Ordinance was in place and that it was intended to limit the building height to 15 feet in order to protect the all ocean views. Well, I didn't want to take just their uh, advice on it, so next I carefully read the entire ordinance several times, including the portion concerning request for modification of a 15-foot height limitation. <clears throat> and it seemed clear to me that the ordinance was designed to protect the ocean view that we were counting on. Uh, but to be absolutely certain, we consulted with a real estate attorney because we figured they would know best about this and how to uh, interpret the law. And 
we had him read the Thomas Fire Ordinance, give us his opinion on the intended purpose of the ordinance, he concurred that issuing a modification permit to increase the height of a new build was only possible if it did not impact the protected ocean view of the adjacent properties. Uh, yeah, the, this slide that you've already had a lesson on what's included, but um, I think the, the, the thing might, we might want to notice is that there is that vague language that, that was spoken of concerning a significant impair of protected private view. What the attorney said was that it seems very clear that because of that vagary there, the important element is the fact that what is significant to all the residents in that area is the protection of their ocean view. Uh, that it not be impaired, and if people hold to that 15-foot height limitation, everybody will have the ocean view that they uh, counted on and that um, they enjoyed when they uh, purchased their homes or rebuilt their homes. Um, I also have some photographs of um, the views. If we could have the, the second slide, please. Um, these I took, uh, it was on a clearer day, I think, than perhaps when the, the um, staff member was there. And again, you can see the ocean. Uh, you can see the, the height of their 18, uh, almost 18 feet um, um, <laughs> flag line. This is in, uh, I marked chair number one as one of the seating areas in our living room where we would sit and enjoy the view. Next slide. Uh, this is chair number two, seated. And you can see you pick up a little more of the view, but it's still about halfway, halfway blocked by the 18-foot um, flag lines. Next one, please. Uh, this is our dining room. You can see the dining room table. I'm seated at the table, looking uh, out through the only opening in the window there, and you can see that the 18-foot line uh, covers the, uh, the ocean there. One more, please. A view from the other side of the dining room table. Uh, there you get more of an ocean view, but still a portion of it is blocked, maybe a third of it is blocked by the, uh, by the flags. Uh, next one, please. This is uh, the patio, table seating outside. Um, and there you see more than half of the uh, ocean view is blocked. Next one, please. Uh, this is seated at the fire pit outside, which, which is our favorite viewing spot for uh, enjoying the, the ocean view. And you see there it's uh, perhaps a third or, or, or more blocked. Next one, please. Um, this is uh, comments of the director's staff report after visiting and photographing the subject property. Uh, we'll show that photograph in a moment. But at the bottom, well, what we see is the, um, I'm sorry, in, in the, the white lettering in the middle where I have yellow highlighted it, it says that the proposed developments would be consistent with the existing neighborhood characteristics. What I'm going to show you a little bit later on is that there is not another house in, in all of the, the um, Thomas Fire rebuild that has, been, has exceeded the 15-foot limit. Every single house that's been built has been uh, conforming to that 15-foot limit. So definitely what the staff was looking at does not conform uh, to the neighborhood characteristic. Uh, let's five minutes remaining. Pardon? Five minutes remaining. Okay, thank you. Uh, next slide. Uh, these are the photographs taken by the, um, by the staff. The red dot in the middle there is actually uh, my friend next door inserted the, the chimney line that was initially proposed by the builder. Two chimneys were proposed. That's mentioned in the report. 
we're hoping that that can go back to just a one chimney uh, uh, situation so that we don't have that right in front of our, our opening there. Next, next. Uh, okay, um, let, me, let me go on just to my, my second point. Um, my second point is the curious process the director staff has handled the Fritch property with uh, regarding the building height modification. The story poles went up originally at the, at the height of 18 feet 4 inches. It was clear to everyone that the building at that height was going to be significantly interfere with our protected private view. Uh, we attended the first director's meeting on August 25th. Also present were our neighbors to the right, to the left, and behind us. Uh, all of, most of them are here tonight, all objecting to the proposed increase in the building height requested by the Fritches. Uh, they would all be negatively impacted by that height. Uh, when we received the agenda for that meeting, we were astonished to find that directors, the director's staff uh, had already recommended to approve the modification permit. However, we were astonished that the staff had never once visited our property. They had never viewed the, the, the story poles. They had never looked at how much of the view was blocked. And yet, uh, they were already recommending that the, the permit be approved and the, the flags, uh, the, the new roof lines uh, built at the height that was requested. Um, so, uh, let's see. Okay, this is, this is that point. Within the, within the staff report, this is the only modification permit that has been applied for in the city under the Thomas Fire Ordinance. The only one, and, and several hundred houses have been built uh, under that ordinance. Um, five photos were taken when the staff came to the property. The next slide. Um, two were, the next slide, please. Did I miss one? Um, wait, we're, we're way ahead. I'm sorry, there should be a picture of the four, the five photographs that the staff took all in one, all in one slide. Well, I'll just describe it then. You don't have it. Um, the five photos were taken uh, when the staff came at their second visit. Um, two were taken seated in the living room, which is our, our, our viewing area. The other three were taken standing at the, at the sliding doors, going outdoors. Uh, so you're higher, you have a different perspective, but that's not where we, that's not where we you know, enjoy the, the view. Also, the staff, uh, um, Director Jerry Gilly uh, specifically, uh, did not know that the, that the patio was part of that, that viewing area. So he didn't even go out there, didn't look, didn't take pictures. Um, I'm going to have to go fast, I guess. Huh? Um, so once again, there, there are three points that I want to point out. Uh, one is that the only mod modification permit, uh, this is the only one that's been requested in, in all of the building in the, in the burn area, the Fritches and we have split a $100,000 fee for taking down the phone poles and the lines that you saw in all those pictures. So they're interested in a view. We are interested in a view worth $50,000 a piece for, a piece for us. Um, so, but evidently, they don't care that much about our view because they're willing to block it with, with their new structure. The only reason they want the new structure is because they want an 18-foot ceiling in their living room. Um, 
And if I may just answer Mr. Walter's question, that question actually did come up by, by Director Gilly at the last meeting. Uh, he asked about uh, grading the lot. There were two answers that were given. One, uh, that that would be too expensive and that uh, retaining walls would be too, too uh, uh, higher and more expensive to build. And uh, the second one was that when that didn't seem to make much sense to, to Director Gilly, that it would be- And that's gonna conclude your time. It would be a danger to us being that high if we happen to fall off of the, uh, the wall into their backyard. That was their reason. Thank you for listening. Appreciate it very much. Okay, we'll now go ahead and invite up the applicant. And the applicant will have 10 minutes. And my apologies for not being able to display the timer, it's presentation or timer. Good evening, uh, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, City Council members. My name is Steve Foster. I'm the principal architect of Cornerstone Ar uh, Architects, responsible for the design you've been looking at. And with me, uh, I have my project manager, Josh uh, Griffin, who will be joining me with uh, maybe some more specifics as we get through this. Um, I'm, I'm going to be brief. Uh, we've been on this project for uh, close to two and a half years now, from the time that the Fritches purchased the property. And then uh, it was approximately four months later that we started a process with the city, and which has gone on for uh, quite some time now, and here we are this evening. Um, our relationships with the Fritches is, is, uh, is the fact that they're longtime Ventura County residents and city residents for 40 plus years. They know this community, they love this community. Uh, they raise their children here and their grandchildren here. And the whole purpose of them being in this property in the first place is that their adjacent neighbors are their kids and their grandchildren. So this is, this is where, this, uh, where the story begins. Um, our story as the uh, designers and architects really hasn't changed from uh, day one uh, in terms of the design process. Our focus has been on the Thomas Fire Permit Ordinance. And specifically, the modification permit process. We're surprised to hear that we're the only ones to <laughs> use this process or, or to uh, approach this process. But nonetheless, it's there. And from day one, at, through the advice of preliminary staff meetings, um, uh, it was recommended that we follow through that process. And that's what we've done. We feel that we've stuck to the letter of the ordinance uh, and have done everything in, in our capacity as designers and architects to meet those conditions. Um, during that process, as you've seen, we've been through a couple director hearings already, correct? At each uh, level, we have lowered and have made concessions. We have lowered the ridge lines. There are basically two ridge lines. I'm going to get into that just a, uh, a little bit more with a graphic here shortly. But uh, the important thing to know is that we have made an attempt to offer concessions to make this thing work uh, for our clients and for the neighbors, the, the residents. So, um, also along with that, story poles have been erected three times. We did it initially 
um, as a courtesy to the neighbor prior to even uh, entering applications with the uh, planning department. But then uh, as we proceeded, obviously we were required to do that, provide those story polls, which we did. And uh, I think believe this is the third time that they're up at this point. So um, again, we're making an effort. I, I think that's the intent that I'm trying to express here is that we're trying to work within the framework of that ordinance the best we can interpret it on our own with the help of city staff and uh, work towards getting this thing accomplished for our clients. Um, I just want to make one quick uh, 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 observation. There are quite a few structures out there that are taller than 15 feet on that hillside. And it's primarily due to the fact that there were existing two-story structures already in place there. So uh, if one is to look, you'll find that that's not an absolute. At this point, I want to bring Josh up. And uh, if we could have staff bring up that graphic. Yes, thank you. Josh, do you want to go ahead and explain what we're looking at here? Good evening. Um, so this is a, a simplified version of the uh, roof plan where we're trying to indicate which ridges are in question uh, in, in these various heights that we have. And um, starting from the very top, allowed by the Thomas Fire Modification Permit is a height of 19 feet. That's where we started our design is, okay, that's what we're allowed by the modification permit. Um, we, present, we went down from that height at our very first director's meeting. The main ridge was uh, 18 foot three and a half, so we were already eight and a half inches below that allowed height. Um, during the discussions at the director's hearing um, and subsequently to that first meeting, we decided, you know, we'll make some concessions. We'll lower all the ridges by four inches. Um, that includes the blue ridges and the red ridges, as you can see, the red ridge, which is our, our higher ridge. Um, at the actual second continued director's hearing meeting, um, as a further compromise, um, we, we made the concession of lowering the majority of the ridges, which are those ones in blue, specifically the ones uh, adjacent to the neighbor's rear wall, down to below the height of that neighbor's wall. So those ridges are not blocking any more than the, their wall already is. And if you can see that arrow pointing from their house, that's the main view line uh, of the ocean, is in that direction. So those lower blue wall uh, ridge lines are not blocking any more of the view than their wall is. Now, you could take the pictures from any angle to make it look like they are, but from a standard sitting or standing, um, it, you can't block more with something that's the same height. Um, so at this point, we're at uh, beneath 18 feet for the main ridge, which is a, a red ridge, uh, which is already a, over a foot less than what's allowed. And our lower ridges are you know, almost, almost three feet beneath what's allowed by code. Um, so that, that's kind of a little history of, of the concessions we've made through this process already. Um, I did want to touch base on the grading because that was brought up. Um, as you can see from some of the pictures, at the rear of our property and in the rear of our neighbor's property, um, it's a pretty steep drop-off. Um, it's, it's about, you can see that our current approved height of 16, 2 and 3 quarters, so that's about the height of their wall. So that's how high it is from the top of their wall to our pad, or our finished floor. It's actually a little bit more to the pad. Um, if we grade any more than that, those walls are going to be 17, 18 feet tall, and that's going to start seriously undermining the neighbor's house. We don't want to go that steep because then the footings have to get so big and so deep that we have to start compromising the stability of the hillside behind us. So really, um, 
this lot is an interesting lot. We already touched on why we can't do a, the standard um, heights based on the hillside ordinance. Uh, it, it's a weird lot because it, from the street, it goes up to the pad, and then the rear of the pad, it goes sharply down. So it's hard to tell what's front, what's back, what's higher, what's lower. But once we've done all the math, this is uh, the best that we could come up with. So that was just some history on the heights. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. I think I'll, we'll just leave it at that and continue the hearing. Thank you. I think we move to public comments. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have one speaker card received this evening. Steve Knoll. And Steve, you'll have three minutes. Good evening. I believe all of you received an email from me, all the council members, that uh, addresses this. And um, do you have any questions about that email? I'd be willing to answer. Uh, I think it shows the, the real picture that the drawings, I'm sorry, they don't. You have to really see the view and the structure proposed blocks the protectable private view, period. Um, my house is, is next door at 192 Knob Hill Lane. Uh, it burned down in the fire. I rebuilt it knowing that I'd be protected by the 15-foot limit. Otherwise, I would not have rebuilt my home in Ventura. I just would have sold my lot and moved on. Uh, my architect was told it was 15-foot. I was told it was 15-foot. 15-foot's been been uh, no problem for me. Uh, I built a house at 15 foot, has high ceilings. Um, this uh, uh, the house at uh, Breadburg was 15 foot. All, all my neighbors who were one story before are 15 foot. There's nothing wrong with that. The, uh, the city department has had such a bias against us. It's, it's very strange. Uh, I can't explain it. It doesn't make any sense. We, we should not be here. This should have been settled a long time ago because it does violate the Breadberg's protectable private view. It blocks my view, it's not the protectable private view, it's the one I've had on that lot for over 20 years, but I, uh, I, I count for nothing in this actually. Uh, and you'll see uh, no one wants to address the chimneys, which will be billboards in their, their, uh, their view. Um, it was disturbing that at the last meeting, uh, Director Gilly was unfamiliar with the ordinance and didn't know that the Breadberg's patio was a, a viewing area, which is just bizarre. It's very important to understand, we're not saying they can't build a house. Build a house. They're building a, a larger than normal uh, uh, square footage house. Go for it. We have no objection to that. It's it's wrecking our views, and it's not needed. There's nothing about the geometry or the geology of that lot that requires, oh, it's got to be over 15 feet. No, not at all. It can be 15 feet like the rest of us complied with, with uh, no complaint. Um, the house that was there before, by, I just checked with the, the LIDAR data that the city provided, was a 11 0.6 feet high, uh, and we're not saying you have to hold it to that. 15 feet, please. Thank you. 
Any comments received by email? Uh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. No communications received by email. And that concludes our public speakers on item number 15. Uh, my apologies, we did receive a communication via email and that has been posted in the supplemental packet. Mr. City Clerk, could you just close the public hearing? So uh, we can now go to the appellant and applicant will both have five minutes as a rebuttal. Thank you. So we will go back to the appellant. The appellant will be given five minutes uh, as the rebuttal. Thank you again. Um, let me address first, the, because it came up in one of our other meetings. Um, this is the second time I've been accused of kind of manipulating the photographs. I have not manipulated any of the photographs. The ones that you saw, I have taken seated in the areas that we seat, sit at and view the, 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 the view. Um, I kind of resent the fact that that's the second time that's been um, suggested. Um, the architect said that there are other houses that are that are higher and two-story houses. On on our street, on uh, Knob Hill, this and the street that's just adjacent to us, there are 20 houses that are all new builds since the fire. They are all one-story homes. They are all 15 feet uh, within within the the ordinance. Not one of them has varied from that. Um, the uh, the concessions that were made. Um, a concession to go from 18 feet 4 inches to 17 feet 11 and a half inches. It's like, you know, advertising a car for $29,999 because you don't want to say $30,000. $30, but that's not a great concession. It is still not enough to, to restore the view or to, or to uh, provide the view which the, the Thomas Fire Ordinance was intended to protect. Um, I think that's why it's called a protected private view, a protected ocean view. And, and for me, I think it is, it is the, the opportunity of the city council or the, or the planning department to be the protectorates of that view. Um, I don't know how else that can happen. So I, I hope that that is the major issue and that we're able to, to retain the view that we you know, feel that the ordinance says that we're able to maintain. Thank you. Now the applicant has an opportunity to provide a rebuttal. Okay, so chimneys. Let's talk about chimneys. I think it was pointed out by the staff director that there were noticeable changes in heights from the original chimneys to our latest configuration. You can, if you look at that, the exact, the, uh, the chimney itself does not exceed the height of the, uh, the higher ridge, where, which it's located against um, adjacent to. There is a spark arrestor that sits on top of that, uh, that chimney, which is probably about eight or 10 inches. We also reoriented the uh, fireplace, which are the chimney, which is approximately two and a half by three and a half feet, to be perpendicular to the uh, the, uh, the rear neighbor's view, so it would be less obstructive. So there were uh, conditions made to address that, and I wanted to make uh, sure that that was understood, and you can look at the plans and verify that for yourself. 
Also, um, I think this comes down to the views that the, uh, the photos that the staff made. And if, I think that's where the crux of this issue is, is that how do we interpret those photos and how do we, um, how do we reconcile that with this permit modification process? Um, every photo that I looked at where, in, where you're in the standing position, whether it be in the patio or in the house, you have a clear view of coastline. Actually, right to the point of the coastline. Yes, it's close, but you're seeing water, and none of the photos are the islands obstructed. So you have, the, you have an ocean view. It is there. Also, where you put yourself on that property, if you're to the easterly side, you would notice a bank of trees that exceed <clears throat> quite, quite a bit more than anything that uh, we're proposing at all, which is the dominant obstruction, really, if you're looking from that upper property. Because as you look westerly, that view opens up all the way to the neighbor's house. In fact, there's a photo there that shows the neighbor's house projecting in front of the rear neighbor's house that cuts off the view up the coastline. So let's look at those photos. Let's make those the, um, uh, uh, let's, let's look at them as though they're the, they're, the, uh, they're the basis for which we're making our decisions on. And I uh, want to really, really recommend that you talk to staff and try to ask your questions because they have spent time on that. And I could get a little deeper into that because I know in the process, uh, staff went up there initially, prior to the first uh, director's meeting, and did take photos. It was the second meeting that uh, Director Gilly and staff uh, and uh, Erica went up again to do that, uh, those, the second session of photos. Now we're in the third session of photos. So obviously it's important. It's a critical aspect of what's, what we're looking at here. Um, Thank you. All right, Mr. Mayor, now would be the appropriate time for uh, final questions from council. Those questions can include uh, questions of staff, the appellant, applicant, or each other. Ms. Deputy Mayor, question. you're up first. I thought there was someone else before me, okay. Um, I, I was just curious, and I'm not sure who this question would go to, but um, are there any before pictures of when the original structure existed? Staff, staff doesn't have any photos. There is Google um, Google Street View, but we don't have any photos. Okay, just because I'm. I mean, I, I'm, I appreciate the pictures that have been provided, but I would have liked to have seen if possible, what, would it, what it looked like before, because um, I also wrote down trees, question mark, in my notes, because th those trees do obstruct significantly, and so I was just curious as to that as well. Um, you know, and so just trying to figure out in my mind the comparison. Um, and, is it uh, accurate then to, to say that there are other homes there that are 
higher or two stories than what's being proposed? Deputy Mayor, uh, Council, uh, we don't have an inventory of all of the Thomas Fire rebuilds and um, if they were all 15 feet, there were two-story homes that were burned down that did rebuild. Um, there uh, may have been two existing single-family residences that exceeded the 15-foot height that rebuilt. Um, the permit process comes in when you're making adjustments to what was what was there before and not doing like for like. So uh, there could have been existing residents that burned down that were taller. There were existing residents that were two-story that rebuilt. So there's a variety here. Um, it is correct that this is the only modification permit. However, that doesn't mean that there have not been Thomas Fire rebuilds that exceed 15 feet. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. I think that's all for, I have for now. Councilmember McReynolds. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, question regarding the fireplace. Uh, you mentioned, uh, I guess, I don't know if this is the staff or the applicant, uh, that there's a spark arrestor. Are these gas fireplaces or wood burning? Uh, thank you for the question. Uh, I believe we, per building code, you aren't allowed to have a wood, wood burning fireplace anymore. Um, that is my understanding that most of these are gas. The applicant can probably confirm that. Yes, okay, thank you. Uh, and then uh, I wanted to verify, so the uh, Thomas Fire uh, re uh, rebuild overlay was approved on January 26th of 28, then modified in uh, September 10th of 28. And those were, were both the buy right and the modification process approved at the same time? I don't think I understand the question. Can you repeat that? So there's, you, you can either process under the buy right, Thomas Fire, or the modification permit. Were those approved at the same time? I mean, I realize this is the only one that's used the modification, but has that been available for everybody? In the Thomas Fire ordinance? Yes, yes that's correct. They, the, the Thomas Fire um, ordinance had both options, um, I believe, since the time it was uh, established. Okay. And then... The, the proposed house is actually 75 square feet smaller than what was proposed, uh, what was previously there. That, that based on the slide that appeared that it was actually a smaller house by 75 square feet, the math I did. Could you clarify? On the, uh, one of the slides you had of the, you were going through the math and I believe this one is just 75 square feet smaller than what was initially. Uh, the building area has not changed. The square footage yeah, that, has that, remained that consistent. Six there. So it says, is it slick? No, I'm sorry, go back one. Uh, I'm sorry, next one, seven, seven, I apologize. So on the third box on the right, Destroyed residence was 42.25. And yes. then the, above it, it's 41.50. So this house is 75 square feet smaller than what was proposed previous, or what was previously there? No. Uh, the proposed residence in the lot coverage calculation, uh, that did not include the garage and um, 
the covered patio and the entry, which are all part of the lot coverage. Um, so if you add the proposed garage and the proposed residence uh, together, that gives you the actual footprint of the house. So you're saying the previously destroyed residence total footprint was the 4225? The destroyed residence is 4225, and the proposed house right now is 5,242 square feet. Got it. Okay. Thank you. Verifies that. That's all the questions I have. Councilmember Halter. Great. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, question is uh, the 19 foot, I think it was quoted as a 19 foot tall retaining wall between the two properties or thereabouts. Was that wall existing prior to the fire as well? Just out of curiosity. Uh, staff does not have the answer. Potentially the applicant can provide or the appellant would be able to confirm that. Is, can anybody out there answer it? Yeah, the retaining wall that separates the two properties, the two properties in questions, uh, it's somewhere around 19 feet tall, I think currently. You said it's a pretty steep. No, it's not that tall. Okay. If, if we could have you come up to the mic. Yeah. Uh, if we could have you come up to the mic to respond, please, for the recording purposes. Yeah, I believe he's talking about from the level of their lot to the top of our wall. That's correct. Is a 19. Okay, yeah. right. So it's it's one wall that is... No, it's not a wall. It's a, it's just a dirt. And okay. then our our wall of the, on the top, which is, I don't even know how tall it is, four feet or something, um, it sits on our property. Okay, is that... Do we know if that's a one-to-one -one slope or a two-to-one slope or a three-to-one slope? I have no idea. I don't even know what that means. Okay, so. it's just <laughs> the steepness of it. Some houses do have like a one-to-one, -one, which is very, very steep, versus oh. some that are two-to-one that you can actually walk up. You have a better answer. <laughs> I would say it's closer to one-to-one. -one. But the retaining wall does not have to be 19 feet tall to no. go to the, t the height of the wall that is on our backyard. It's it's considerably less than that yeah and yeah and so, it's currently not there, a retaining there, wall right there now, it's yet to be built simple, a simple maybe a four foot tall retaining wall uh okay. on the on the existing and it's it's made with rocks and it's not a it's not adequate for the job got it um the, yes i'd like to hear your that comment can i do that you took photos i think of the existing site correct yeah <clears throat> Um, yeah. Yes, on the bottom left picture, you can see um, that there's multiple retaining walls. All those retaining walls, lower retaining walls are equal, or I mean are uh, existing. Um, and then there's dirt behind there that's not very steep. It's not, you know, it's basically a, it. a cut. And then they built this new wall on top of it. It's hard to tell in that picture, but that white portion is, is new wall. That, and that lower part of that white is roughly the level of their back of their yard. I, and that's the three-foot guard wall, guardrail wall that they have on their side. It's three feet above their property. And then okay. everything else below that is roughly 15, 16 feet. So in reality, it might end up being, uh, in order to fit that size home, you may be looking at a five to seven foot type retaining wall at some point when you go to build the house. Is it designed with the retaining wall going it, in at so that this point? So this pad is going to, we're building the house on top of this pad, so we're right. going to have to have a retaining wall from the top of that pad, actually slightly below that pad, up to roughly the bottom of their wall 
to protect their house. So from the bottom of their wall down to the pad, that'll all be retained. So you're cutting back into that hill? Uh, no, we're, it's going to be a few feet off that. So okay. I'm, I'm talking about the heights. That's the height difference. But we're going to be a few feet in front of that with a concrete swale between our retaining wall and their site wall okay. in order to get water from behind the building. So we have to be off that setback from that wall. It's important for me to understand that there's um, a slope, and then there's, you're going to cut into the hill to a certain extent and put up a retaining wall that may be five feet, six feet, seven feet, because it looks like the house is getting pretty close to that. Yeah. To that. The, yeah. The back of our area. of our wall is along with the, is lined up with the setback. Um, staff, if you could bring up the um, section or the elevations that show a section through that area, that might explain a little better. And on a, on a flag lot, sorry. Elevations. Our elevations are in the, in the report. No, I guess that's in the staff report. Okay. Uh, yeah, in the staff report, we have an elevation that shows the relationship of their wall, the five-foot setback from their wall, okay. which is their property line, and then our new retaining wall, and then the rest of the building. So in this configuration, um, I live on a flag lot too, so I'm kind of familiar. It's a little bit hard to ascertain what's a side yard versus a front yard versus a backyard. So this is considered a side yard. Uh, so you're five feet. You have to be no closer than five feet with, your, with the structure, with the house. So it sounds like you probably will be cutting into the hillside to put up some type of retaining wall. Yeah, well, there's an existing cut at that, roughly that line. Got it. We might be cutting in an extra eight a inches or a foot, but yeah. Okay. Okay, and then um, I think for staff is, um, or in, anybody can answer this, is as I look at those pictures and I see straight lines showing what views would be encumbered sitting down or standing up, in the key areas that we would call, um, what do you call, um, what, what, what's our term for that? Um, protected space, protected views. Um, what percent would you say, if you look at those areas like the patio area, the living room area, I think the kitchen's one of it as well, one of the, uh, uh, you know, there's a word for it, protected or whatever it is, um, space. Uh, what percent would you say sitting down this house will take away from the uh, scene where it, it obstructs, starts to obstruct the ocean, sitting down and then standing up, approximately. And you don't have to be exact. I can't tell by the straight lines because it looks like it continues all the way down. Uh, thank you, Councilmember Halter. We don't have a percentage of what views are obstructed at the seated or standing level. Um, the Thomas Fire Ordinance does say primary living area, which is the living room, family room, dining room, kitchen, or outdoor patio. Uh, it doesn't say that it's all of these spaces. It's a primary living uh, area, which could be all of these spaces. It could be one of these spaces, nor does it define if that protected view is from a sitting or standing. Uh, we provided both, um, but there's no... Um, a concrete definition in the, the viewing area or the protected view um, that brings clarity to that. Uh, it would be hard for us to guess just off of these what percentage that would be. It would really depend on what room you're in and which direction you're looking um, mm -hmm. to, to capture that. Okay, and then as I'm looking at the design, is the intent 
from the um, owner and the design designer is they have vaulted ceilings in the entire house? No? Okay. Um, and then uh, the highest part of the house, the ridge line, if we're five foot setback from the 194, um, an average room might be 12 to 15 feet before you get to the ridge. So that ridge may end up being on average, maybe 15, 17 feet away from that property line? I defer to, to the applicant for that. Uh, and, and Councilmember Halter is talking about your, your original line over your entryway. I believe uh, roughly it's about to the nearest point of that living room ridge is what you're speaking to. Yeah. It's about somewhere in the realm of 40 feet, 40 feet. from the rear property line then it actually uh, increases because it begins to span away from okay. uh, directionally. Great. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. I appreciate all the answers. Thanks. Councilmember Campos. Yes, I would like to ask the app the applicant what the floor height is from from the base where you're building on to the floor level and then what the floor to ceiling height is. So uh, I believe your first question was about the distance from the existing pad to the floor height. Right. That's about eight inches. Eight inches. Yes, the, our new finished floor height is the same as the existing previous finished floor height was. So when and they, yeah. And the floor to ceiling height? It, it varies. So in the, in the lower ridges, those are flat ceilings at 10 feet. Okay. Um, and then in the, the main vaulted area, which is that, the, that main higher ridge, um, it, we're gonna, it's going to be a vaulted ceiling. So that'll be closer to 14 and a half, 15 feet. On the inside. On the inside. Thank you. Other questions? Mr. McReynolds. So we, we actually are, are not taking any public comments at this time. So we, we've, uh, unfortunately, we've already taken a public comment as well as appellant and applicant presentations. I have a question for the architect uh, regarding the fireplaces. So the, the fireplace in the library, since it's a gas appliance, is it possible to just vent, side vent that out instead of having that uh, chimney, or is it... Uh, is the chimney uh, providing some purpose, it, specifically the one in the library? And uh, for the, and just for the responses, if I could request you to come up to the mic so that we can get everything captured in the recording, please. So the uh, fireplace you're referring to is uh, basically a, a study office mm -hmm. fireplace. That's on, against an exterior wall, and yes, we could side vent that. So would that alleviate one of the chimneys? It would. And then mm -hmm. architecturally, it's from the rear. Correct. As opposed to the front of the house. Yes, it is. It's towards the rear. We just have to, you know. So I'm just saying that might be a solution. 
Correct. Regarding one of the, the other ones. However, the other one's in the interior, yeah, it's in the so it's in, that's an impossibility. But, uh, but that would be something you'd consider potentially? Yes, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Um, I have a few questions. So if you could keep up uh, the photos from the patio number 10, I want to make sure that I understand this. So I see the two, and this is for staff, if that's possible. So on 10, please. Slide 10. There we go. So I want to make sure I understand this. So, oh, oh beautiful. So there are two yellow lines there. And those lines indicate the ridge lines of the roof of the building, the, of the residence, correct? And the upper one, is that the ridge line of the vaulted area? Okay, if you can go to um, number 11, please. That is correct. Okay. So what I'm seeing here, I'm not an architect, and I apologize. The closest I came to it was my roommate was an architect at Cal Poly, so I really love, um, yeah. Um, I, I love you the way everybody's brain works. But if I, if I look at that in my non-architectural sense, it looks like to me that some of the ocean view there is impaired. The staff, is that accurate in your opinion? Yes. And it's also impaired if I go to number 12, please. And I know that these aren't, there's not too far off. Yes. Okay, so tell me, and, and I know maybe it wasn't you, it could have been previous executive in the area. So if you knew the view was impaired, why would you approve the modification? Staff Why would one? I'm not accusing you. I, I don't want to do that. <laughs> Staff provided a recommendation to approve the modification permit. Um, the Thomas Fire Ordinance does not specify how to quantify the protectable private views um, experienced from the viewing area of the abutting primary residential structure. The ordinance is not clear as to whether the views are from a specific height, such as standing or seated. If more than one viewing area or view needs to be protected, does not define exterior yard space, but states that it is not part of the viewing area, and does not provide a specific threshold as to what is considered a significant impairment of a protectable private view. So, uh, let me interpret if I can. Um, so that means you didn't think that it was a significant impairment? and therefore you approve the modification? So uh, thank you, Mayor, for the, this project went to a director's hearing where the director took all of the information similarly to you at the hearing and made a finding whether um, they believe that this was a significant impairment of their protectable private view based on the definitions that were provided to you tonight and from the viewing areas. This photo is taken from a seating position one could also look at from a standing position. So there's the interpretation or 
um, ability to interpret here of what what that view is from what position and what from, from what rooms. So um, Director Gilley at that meeting approved it with modifications lowering the heights based on uh, the information he had at that time. Okay, and I think I've asked this, but I want to make sure I get it. So the top yellow line, that's the ridge line, uh, on, and then we're on 12. That's the ridge line of the vaulted area. That's correct, over the entryway and the tallest ridge line. The other two are shown in the lower ridge line. So given your better architectural sense versus mine, if the vaulted area was lowered by a foot, 18 inches, are we gonna have an issue with, is this, does this go away? By this, I mean, does the impairment go away? If council were to make further modifications to this permit, lowering the primary ridge line from the 17 feet to the ridge line of the uh, remainder of the building, which is about 16 feet, um, it would have a similar line like the, the rest of it, so along that um, coast, or below that coast on that urban area. Okay, and um, it seems to me that if that happened, then there would be no examples of the yellow line that would impair the view, either sitting or standing. Do you believe that that's accurate? Uh, it would be hard to say without um, adjusting the story poles. That could be a possibility. <laughs> I, I wish I was a mediator. And uh, it, it just, um, these are questions only, is that correct? So I got to find a way to ask the question here. Um, would the, the two groups be willing to agree to lower that vaulted area by X number of inches and both be satisfied? Can I ask that question? Is that? And, and, and you, you know, look, I don't take Architectural Digest every month, and so I apologize. <laughs> I if appreciate I'm, your candor, Mayor. Um, I think, you know, we are talking inches here. That's the bottom line we're looking at here. Yeah, we're, I think we could, you know, be willing to go a few inches, six inches. That's, that, that's a pretty good size. That probably lowers the pitch of that roof one full um, unit, you know, the way pitch roofs, pitch roofs are um, described. So, um, yeah. To answer your question, so I'm looking for a medium, you know, some sort of compromise here, if you will, uh, to, so, to meet so this. Can I ask the applicant then? So would you be satisfied with 12 inches in the vaulted area? If I could have you come up to the mic. You know, I know I'm putting you on. I, I'm... We don't like appeals because no matter which way we go, we're, we're displeasing yeah. somebody. So I'm trying like heck here to. I appreciate uh, you. And, wrestling. and you, you're going to have to live next to them. Um, <laughs> and that first margarita might be a tough one um, when both when both homes are built. So I'm just trying but to. I can throw the empty glasses <laughs> down at their house. <laughs> you know the. Um, 
the lower yellow lines that are actually at 16 feet, I think four inches, um, they, they would significantly, if, if all the roof lines were at that, that would significantly improve the view that we have. Uh, and I think we could live with that. Um, but but if if the yeah if it's just a six inch or one, or or a one foot lowering of the highest fault, um, really we're just talking about another six inches to get it down to 16, 16 feet six inches. Okay, so um, thank you. Yeah, thank we're, you. We're getting close. <laughs> so staff, again on slide twelve. So that's the upper yellow is the what is the height of that ridge line? 17 feet 11 and a half inches and the secondary ridge lines are 16 feet to uh, about 16 feet two inches. So we would all agree that if we went down to 16 two, there would be no impairment of the view. It's line on line. In your opinion, is potentially okay. So, um, I'm going to test my authority here. Um, I want to take a 10 minute break, um, and in that 10 minutes, I'd like the applicant and the appellant to get together and see if you can get a, satis a satisfactory level. Okay, is that okay? Would you want anybody else there besides you two? Yes, okay. And uh, we don't need anybody from up here there, correct? Mr. City, yeah, we don't want to be there? Okay, good. So it is, um, we need to take a break anyway. So we'll come back at, help me with the time now. So it's- 8.42 right now. 8.42. back in 10 minutes. So I'll tell you what, we'll be uh, nine o'clock back here. And I, want, I expect this from both. And if that happens, then when the house is built, I'll be there to buy the first round, okay? Uh, and real, real quick, just for the city attorney, if I may, uh, for the public hearing itself, is it, uh, are there any procedural matters that we have to do prior to taking a recess? Can we keep the hearing open? I think the hearing can stay open. We're just taking okay. a break. Thank you. Okay, um, a break till nine o'clock. Thank you.
call the meeting to order, back to order. Mr. Mayor, if I may. I just want to disclose that in the hallway I did speak with some of the people who wrote emails, but we didn't actually speak about any of the substance or really any of the things that we're deciding tonight in the appeal. Thank you. Thank you. Do I have any news from the applicant and the appellant? Are we going to walk up to the mic hand in hand? We're, we're very close. I think we are, and, and we're a little bit off, but we're gonna we're gonna agree on the lower walls will be uh, surveyed and they'll be built at the height of the wall, re the the property line wall on our backyard. So not to exceed the height of their rear garden wall. Okay, and that's acceptable to both parties. Yeah, the part we're stuck on is I would like the height of the, of the taller walls to be 17 feet and they're willing to go to 17 feet, five and a half inches. So we're not, not that far off, but um, maybe you could, you could uh, flip a coin. I don't know, flip a coin. Well, the rub here is we actually discussed and came to agreement to lower it to 17 foot, five and a half with, with him and his wife, the Apollos, right? Uh, which was thumbs up, great. We're talking about the high ridge now. And then two minutes later, evidently a neighbor interjected uh, his thoughts and said, no, I want 17 feet. This is what uh, Bill said. And, um, and now we're kind of at this uh, slight impasse, but we did agree to 17 foot, five and a half. Sandy, is that correct? So that's... Well, what we really want, what our neighbors want is a 15 feet, but we're agreeing to raise that to 17 and, and we'll be happy with that. And uh, we'll be happy with the lower walls being at what we agreed at also. So. Ms. Sayer, are we okay? I'm sorry, Mayor Schroeder. I don't know if I completely follow <laughs> what they've agreed to. Okay. So, I, I don't know if we're at an impasse or not, but we agreed to 17 foot, five and a half inch height for the high ridge. What I'm hearing now is 17 feet from this gentleman. We agreed with him and his wife, the 17 foot, five and a half, we're gonna lower the main ridges, the lower ridges, to no, not to exceed that garden wall of their own. So the issue is that, main, that, is that higher ridge, which we agreed to 17 foot, five and a half. Now what I'm hearing is they want 17 feet, or at least, so. so okay. He's, that is that is accurate. Very very true. We shook hands on it. What we what I suggested is that they would excavate the lot for a foot down a foot and keep the length the, the heights that they have. Um, they didn't want to do that, but I did shake hands on the 17 feet five and a half inches. But I'm not good at making a quick decision, and I you know I made a bad decision right then. But that's the one I made, and we shook hands on. 
Okay, so you shook hands on 17, five and a half on the ridge line? Correct. Yep. That's correct. Uh, Ms. Zayer, are we? I believe I understand the agreement now. The ridge line over the entry at 17 feet, five and a half inches, and the ridge line of all of the secondary ridges to meet the height of the garden wall of uh, the adjacent property. That's correct. That's correct? That's Both correct. Both sides? Yeah. Okay, Mr. City Clerk or City Attorney, how do we uh, codify this solution? Uh, Mr. Mayor, we just need to close the public hearing if there are no more questions from the council and then deliberate. And I guess your deliberation would be a motion to uh, revise the resolution that you have to incorporate uh, these terms. Okay. Are there any questions from anybody else from the city council? Then, Mr. City Clerk, the hearings. Public hearing's closed. Okay, so the public hearing is now closed. What, one second. You're going to put in writing about the uh, the chimney that's going to be vented out the side. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now we're in deliberations. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm looking for a motion. So moved. So moved. Do I have a second? A uh, second. What they just agreed upon. Yes. And what they agreed upon, Ms. Sayer, to make is 17, five and a half on the ridge line. On the primary ridge line over the entry. Okay. And to the secondary ridge lines to be at a height that does not exceed that of the garden wall of the adjacent property. And for the chimney at the library to do side ventilation and remove that chimney. Okay. Any other questions? A vote, please, Mr. City Clerk. Okay, is the motion clear for everyone? Perfect, then you can go ahead and enter your, your vote now on item number 15. I think we're waiting for one more vote. You can go ahead and enter your vote on the Crestron and Perfect, all votes have been entered. Uh, waiting for one more, Councilmember Duran, if you could go ahead and enter your vote and lock that device, thank you. Okay, there we go. Now all votes have been entered. Seven ayes and the motion carries. Thank you very much. Thank you. If the council give me like one second, I wanna shake both their hands. Okay, on to item 16, construction contract with Sam Hill and Sons. 
We have a staff presentation. City Clerk, are we ready to proceed? Yes. Good evening, Honorable Mayor and City Council. For the record, my name is Peter Shade, Assistant Public Works Director and City Engineer. I am before you tonight to request approval for the award of the Midtown to Westside Interconnect contract. I'm joined tonight by Betsy Cooper, Ventura Waters Gen Assistant General Manager, who will help with the presentation, and Ron Herbst, Principal Engineer in Ventura Water who will help with technical questions during Q&A after the presentation. I would like to note that providing a presentation for a contract award is not typical, but we felt that because of the size of the contract and because the previous board is who took action on the secret document, that it would be appropriate for you to hear this item tonight. Okay, good evening, Mayor Schrader and members of the council. Um, in order to describe this purpose of this project, which is what I'm going to do, I'm gonna give an overview of how our water system was developed. So this slide here shows our current water service area, and our service area includes customers within the city limits, um, plus some areas in the unincorporated area of Ventura County, which is primarily north Ventura Avenue and um, the unincorporated area of Satakoy. So um, Ventura Water was our first water source. And in the early 1800s, our mission fathers discovered that Foster Park area was the best place to divert water. And an aqueduct was built um, from the Foster Park to the city's mission area. The river continued to be the only supply for many years. So as the city started to expand to the east, the water system was being designed to flow from the west to the east. Now Lake Casitas was constructed in the late 1950s. This became another water supply also entering the water distribution system at the west side of the city. As the city continued to develop to the east, groundwater sources were added to meet the growing demand. The city first um, drilled its first well near Buenaventura Golf Course in 1957. This well pumps water from the Oxnard Plain groundwater basin. Um, in 1970, the city purchased Satakoy Water Company, which is located at the east side of the service area. This area is served by water pumped from the Santa Paula groundwater basin. And later, um, the city started uh, drilling wells near the government center that pump water from the Mound groundwater basin. So the Ventura River, Lake Casitas, and these three groundwater basins are, comprise the five potable water supplies that serve our, our customers today. 
This system is all connected, so we do have the ability to move water from these various sources around our system. But as our water system was developed, the way it was designed was primarily to move water from the west to the east. And therefore, hydraulically, we do have some limitations on how much water we can move from the east side of our city to the west. And the recent drought has shown the vulnerabilities of our supply sources, particularly that of Ventura River and Lake Casitas. And the need to move water more efficiently from the east to the west um, becomes even more important to uh, more effectively utilize all of our sources. Now, as you are aware, the city will be adding two new water sources to our system. First is the State Water Interconnection Project. So State Water will end the e enter the east end of our city and will be bl blended with water pumped from the Santa Paula Basin before entering our distribution system. And then there's the Ventura Water Pier Potable Reuse Project, which will be blended with water pumped from the Oxnard Plain and Mound groundwater basins. Now I wanted to note that um, on this figure, we are identifying the Ventura Water Pier um, Project at the location in which it's treated water will be blended with the groundwater sources before entering the distribution system. The actual location of the Ventura Water Pier facility will actually be located near our wastewater treatment plant at the corner of Harbor and uh, Levis Park Drive. So with the addition of these two new sources, being able to move water more effectively through our city from the east to the west will become even more important. So um, there are two capital improvement projects that will help the movement of water from the east to the west in order to overcome some of these system limitations. The project that we are recommending being awarded tonight is referred to as the Midtown to Westside Interconnection Project. It's located primarily in Telegraph Road between Mills Road um, and Hill Street. The second project is referred to as the East Side to Midtown Interconnection Project. This is a future project that is being designed, and it will be located in Foothill Road, east of Kimball Road, and also in Kimball Road between Foothill and Telegraph. And as their title suggests, the Midtown to West Side project will allow water to flow more effectively from the middle of the city to the west side, and the future east side to midtown project will allow water to flow more effectively from the east side of the city to the middle of the city. So now um, Peter Shade will describe the midtown to west side interconnection project in more detail. So as Bessie indicated, the midtown to west side interconnect contract stretches from Hill Street and Telegraph Road westerly to the Five Points booster pump station. The project installs about 12,000 feet of PVC and steel pipe and reuses about 14,000 feet of steel and ductile iron pipe. Additionally, the project will install flow control valves at the Five Points booster pump station. Here's the schedule for the project. The project uh, bids were opened on December 15th between March and August. The contractor will be ordering the long lead time items such as large pipe and valves. And then it's expected that in August, the contractor will start in the field working from about August 2023 to October 2024. 
Four bids were received for the project, with the lowest bid submitted by Sam Hill and Sons of Ventura in the amount of $10,999,999, which I will refer to as 11 million for obvious reasons. Their bid was about 4.5% above the engineer's estimate. Based on the array of bids, the low bid is considered to be a reasonable cost to do the work. Contingency for the project is 10% or $1.1 million. Part of the $12.1 million for the contract plus contingency will be paid for by an integrated regional watershed management grant of 2053000 The remainder will be funded by Ventura Water Fund 72. It should be noted that in order to fund this project, in addition to the amount shown in the CIP, $6.84 million is being transferred to the project from Ventura Water Fund 72. There are two reasons for this increase in cost and that shown in the CIP. First, the estimate shown in the CIP was calculated in 2017 based on a preliminary design report and then escalated to 2020 construction dollars. And so it did not have the benefit of an actual engineer's estimate. Secondly, since 2000, we've seen about a 30% increase in inflation for construction projects, even exceeding that of the CPI inflation for general goods. I wanted to also want to note that the reuse of pipe that is shown in the design is saving the project about $4 million. Originally, the project was going to have all new pipe all the way from Hill Street all the way to the booster pump station. Lastly, tentative scheduling for February 27th uh, council meeting will bring before you a contract for approval for the construction management and inspection of this project. During CEQA and during as part of design, a number of issues came to light that were identified as mitigation for the project. The contractor will prepare a construction staging and traffic management plan, which the city will review and approve. Night work will occur at the intersection of Victoria and Telegraph Road uh, for the crossing of the intersection, and that work will be performed as jack and bore pipe installation. For compaction, any vibratory compaction equipment will, will be used within 250 feet of vibratory vibration sensitive equipment at Ventura College will be, so no vibratory compaction equipment will be used near the college where there is a vibratory vibration sensitive equipment within 250 feet. And then lastly, we'll have a public uh, outreach plan that will be, include a postcard with project information and contact phone numbers that will be made mailed to all residents and businesses that may be impacted by the work. Additionally, project information will be posted on the city's website that will include con construction start date, a brief description of the project, and phone numbers uh, of city contacts. After the completion of this project, the Midtown to Westside Interconnect project, Telegraph Road from Victoria to Ashwood will be resurfaced. This section of pavement has been in need of repaving for quite a while but it was felt it would be best to wait until after the trenching associated with the interconnect project was complete 
to do this work. We'll monitor the completion of the interconnect project in deciding when to bid the resurfacing contract so it will follow soon after the completion of the interconnect project. So to summarize, we are requesting that you approve the award of contract for $11 million and authorize the Public Works Director to amend the contract for the contingency price of $1.1 million. Thank you much. Council comments or questions? Councilmember Johnson. Thank you. I would like to thank staff for bringing this to council. As you said, it is a, it is a hefty budget item. Uh, and so much of what we deal with pales in comparison with this. But um, I, don't, I don't have any questions. I appreciate the staff report and the presentation tonight. Thank you. Thanks. Councilmember Campos. Um, I, I was unclear reading through the staff report. Is water going to pass through West Ventura and leave town into the county area? Or are we feeding only to West Ventura? So the, the purpose of the project is to be able to better utilize all our water sources. Right. So, so that if we have deficiencies with our western side supply, supplies, for instance, Ventura River, which we do have times where there's, we can't pump from the river, and we know how low that Lake Casitas got during this drought, when we're minimized in the amount of water we can use from that, we need to better be able to push water from our eastern supplies over to the west side so that we can minimize the impacts on those resources. And do you think that not just because of drought but because of our expected growth, you will be needing to move more water west through the city? And I mean growth all through Ventura. Hmm. I mean, I think it's more of a climate change question rather than a growth question. I think there's going to be more times when we, um, you, you know, um, need to utilize both. There will be some of those rains where we have Ventura River water and we want to be able to utilize it and let our groundwater sources rest. Right. And then other times when we want to depend more on groundwater supplies to get water over to the west side when those um, sources are... are, are um, um, and by climate change issues, I assume you're meaning when the water levels drop too low for the steelhead or when the river is just not there because of drought? Yes. That type of issue. Okay. We, yeah, we see we're going to have more of those kind of cycles with climate change. Okay. Thank you. Councilmember Duran. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Um, and thank you so much for your report. I had two questions for you. One of them is uh, you, you, I just needed a little clarity. You said you're going to be saving like $5 million on reusing pipe? Yes, uh, about, uh, about 12,000 or 14,000 lineal feet of pipe will be reused for the project. And Ron, maybe you might want to make comment on that. Uh, there we go. Yes, we will. When we say reusing pipe, that's a that's a pipe that's in the ground already, uh, installed in the '60s, I believe, and we're essentially changing the direction of what it, you know, had historically flowed. 
it previously was moving water from the booster pump station towards the west side. And now that pipe will be reused, connects to many other pipes, and water will actually flow in the opposite direction from uh, east to west. And so using, you know, using old pipe, is it going to last as long as what you would put new into the ground? I mean, what's the longevity yeah, of that? We, we have looked at the pipe. In fact, we cut out sections. This is a few years ago, and the pipe was in excellent shape. Um, it's a uh, ductile iron pipe. It's metal pipe, and its coatings were in good condition. And pipe like that is expected to last 100 years or more as long as those coatings uh, are, are, you know, maintained. So it'll last longer than our lifetime? Most likely. Right on. Um, my, my other question to you is um, how how is this going to affect the businesses in that area? How, it, it, will it impact them negatively? And if so, how? And if that's the case, what what's the plan? Well, there's a few ways that the project could impact citizens and local businesses. Of course, there's always noise associated with construction, and there'll be noise throughout the project. Dust can affect residents and businesses, and then access to their businesses and residences from, um, from construction uh, uh, issues. And as I mentioned earlier, there's, as part of the project, there'll be a traffic management plan created where the contract will be required to, um, to manage traffic in a way that will reduce impact to the businesses and residents. Um, one of the things is that, um, uh, they, that, that they have to have all lanes of traffic open um, between seven and nine and four to six at night, so, or four to six in the afternoon. So, so for instance, those of you that, that know this area and travel it oftentimes in the morning know that, that um, Point High School, for instance, uh, a lot of traffic coming from on North, uh, on Victoria, making left turns. Um, so those lanes won't be able to be impacted uh, until, you know, until 9 a.m., so after school's already in session. And then, of course, this kind of construction is not, they don't just sit in one spot and work for a year. You know, they're moving down the road, they're, they're excavating, they're, they're uh, welding the pipe, and they're dropping it in the ground, and they're, they're backfilling and recompacting. And so, so it's not as though that the impact over that whole length of Hill Street to, say, Mills is experienced um, throughout that whole year. You know, it's, there's, where there's active construction, there'll be impacts, and those will be addressed uh, with the mitigations required in the specifications. Well, thank you for taking all of that into consideration and having a plan to make sure those businesses prosper. Thank you. Thanks. Mr. McReynolds. Uh, two questions. Uh, the east to uh, Midtown, when is that expected to come before us? Or start, if I don't know, if it'll come before us. But. It's, the project is almost all designed. It's going to be a funding question on, um, and, a, and a traffic question. We probably will delay it for a little bit is the talk, but part of it is going to be um, available funds when we look at all our different projects, um, whether we push it out a little bit. Um, and also, I don't think we want to, to do that project where it's going to be a traffic question too because we're going to probably be closing down Foothill for a section of it when we do that construction. So to have Telegraph um, 
and and foothill impacted might be um, you know we're, we're going to take a look at that also to try to minimize traffic I'm going to give you the right answer first the reason you did the jog is because my wife's the vice principal at OLA and that's why it doesn't go near the school where she's the vice principal but why does it jog uh, around uh, down Dunning as, a, as opposed to a straight shot to the uh, five points pump station Oh, that's the that's the repurposed pipe, and that was just the where it was installed. So you just, it's already there. Then. Yeah. Okay. The real answer is because I asked you, and you didn't want to go. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, you. Mr. Halter. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Uh, just a simple question, and more of an education for me is um, contingencies. When you're dealing a project this size, 1.1 million is a sizable contingency. So who decides when that gets used? Is it when there's unknowns? Is it when prices increase unexpectedly? Um, is the project defined enough to know that you're now using the contingency? Or is it assumed that the 1.1 is automatically going to be spent with the project? 10% is our standard contingency amount that we use for all projects. Um, Normally, we would like to see our projects less than 5%. And so contingency, I suppose, is another word for change orders. Mm -hmm. So, and those might be unforeseen conditions. Somebody, there there's might be a, uh, something that's dug up during the course of excavation that wasn't expected, and there'll be a cost associated with that. There also could be issues related to the design that are, that are identified during construction, and it's uh, believe that something needs to be modified slightly. Okay. And so there's change orders that, that are associated with those activities. But 1.1 million is quite a lot of money and it is, it is at our standard 10%, but we would certainly hope that we would be closer to 5% or less normally. Is there any um, uh, Native American representations needed for this project or you're not going deep enough to need that or is there no sensitive areas that you'd be bypassing? Um, this, this project does sort of precede some of the current Native American uh, uh, engagement rules. And so, and so I think that we're, we're not in the situation where we've engaged in that same manner. Okay. But as standard practice, if anything archaeological is exposed during construction, um, construction activities would be stopped. And we'd have somebody come out and take a look at it to determine what what artifact that could be or if that were human remains. Excellent, thank you very much, appreciate it. Uh, two quick questions. So how long will the night work take approximately? He's, uh, I'm trying to think it's Jack and Boar. Um, I don't know, I don't have an exact answer. That's probably, uh, maybe, what, you, what would you guess, Peter? Like month? I, I would think once they set up that it would be less than a couple of weeks. Okay, and is there um, expect problems inventory? Because uh, it seems like supply issues keep coming up. Are there supply issues on pipes? Yes, we we were we have been um, investigating that as the we were nearing completion of design, and we were told it's uh, currently around seven months for the steel pipe, six months for the PVC, six months for the valves. Okay, um, I think Mr. Ackerman is here from the Water Commission. Thank you very much. Um, any other questions? Let's go to public comments. 
Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have one speaker this evening, Spencer Noren. Spencer, you'll have three minutes. Thank you, Michael. Good evening, Council, Mayor, residents. Just want to come up and make a quick little couple of notes, I think, from a resident's standpoint to this project as we move forward and bringing water from east to west and maybe a direct a little bit of Councilmember Compost. I think it, a lot state water connection goes this way because Ojai will need our water too from the state connection. I'm positive we can come from this project. But it's more about what we can do and the advantages we can take in this current construction. At one point on Telegraph Road from Mills to Hill used to be a very big thoroughfare from our town at one point from the college. Very nice medians, trees in the side, trees in the medians. I know this well from Norton's Market being in that same exact area. Even at one point, the college had water fountains shooting up in front of the college. You can see those if you drive by Telegraph. There'll be blue bowls that are still empty that used to be fountains at one point. And moving forward with a great world-class water purification project, I think it'd be really cool if we can maybe think of some in, you know, uh, modern ways to attract and show people how cool Ventura is moving forward. I know you don't want to waste water maybe with the fountain, but I think a fountain would be a great idea or attractiveness in this project, not just tearing the roads up for a few years, laying pipe down, and then going back to what it was before. I see that as a big thoroughway as you come up Victoria, make a left on Telegraph Road and go to, mid, and go to Five Points. Very high, desirable, and attractive area for our city. Along with the other project, moving from east to west side, we talked about it being on Foothill Road to Kimball also right in my neighborhood, ironically, and I really want to look at maybe a possibility of increasing safety, Mayor, on that area as you come north on Pettit, you look east and west, coming to Foothill Road, there's no sidewalks there. It kind of comes between county land and city land, so if we're going to tear up along that big stretch, a lot of runners, bikers, we're looking at micro-mobility micro from east to west as well, I think this could be something involved in that project as we look at that possibility of increasing safety from residents and bicyclists from the east side to the west side, um, even coming to Kimball Road, along with the Ventura Land Trust is there. As you make that bend by the land trust and you came into that area, there's a, a piece of land owned by Edison right there as well. So all close to Foothill and Kimball, possibilities we're turning up the roads, looking for safety and opportunity. Thank you so much. That concludes our speakers on item 16. Okay, council deliberations slash motion. I am open to a motion. Uh, uh, Mayor, I would make a motion to approve staff recommendations. Second. I have a motion and a second. Are we ready to vote? Thank you. Okay, on the motion on item 16, go ahead and enter your, almost, go ahead and enter your vote now. Okay, all votes have been entered. Seven ayes, and the motion carries. Thank you much. Great job. City goal progress update. Mr. City Manager. Thank you, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council. I'll make this brief. Uh, this is the standard quarterly update that we do and provide to the City Council on a regular basis. Uh, we wanted to put this on the agenda tonight in particular because, uh, as you all all aware, we have the annual goal-setting meeting on this Saturday, the 28th. 
There's two new things that we introduced this time around that you'll see in your staff report when you look at the tables for each of the goals. The first is there's an estimated percentage of completion for each goal. And then secondly is a staff resource required. And I want to point out that this is relative to the department. So what may be a big lift for one department um, of a small size, um, that'll be reflected in that uh, in, the, in the language in that line. Um, these are not scientific. These are estimations about where a particular goal is in terms of completion. That being said, um, typically what we do when we provide the quarterly update is we allow the council to ask questions of anything that's on the page or in the staff report. We can elaborate if there's council interest. Uh, the one small exception is I did ask three of our department heads to provide a brief update on uh, three items only because these are uh, items that um, I typically hear the most interest in from the council and members of the community. So I'm going to ask in succession here, I'll tee them up. The first um, person I'm going to ask to provide a brief update when I say brief, we're going to keep these to about 90 seconds to two minutes. Uh, the first one is Valerie Barroso providing an update on the class and comp study. The second one will be Phil Nelson regarding our coastal management program. And the third one will be the uh, ERP, and Michael Kuhn will be delivering that. So first up, uh, Valerie Barroso. Good evening. Just a brief update on our uh, citywide classification and compensation study. Uh, we're coming down the home stretch. Uh, we're about 90% complete at this point. All of our classification uh, reviews are completed. Um, and we're currently wrapping up the compensation portion of the study. Um, it's a bit complex when you get into the compensation and comparisons. So while we had hoped to have a final report this month, uh, we're looking uh, more towards the end of February. And then at that point in time, we'll prepare to bring uh, the report and findings to council. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Barroso. Mr. Nelson. Good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, members of the Council. Uh, for the record, I'm Phil Nelson, your Public Works Director. With regards to uh, coastal management preservation, we have a number of initiatives that we're working on. Uh, first, we've got some structural repairs along the promenade, the stairwells down onto the beach area, some other areas. We've been working on a design and permitting for that project. That work continues, uh, and we hope to have that project out to bid later this year. We're also working on a Pierpont Beach Sand Management Plan. It's a plan that was actually worked on a number of years ago and it's stalled for various reasons. Uh, working with the Coastal Commission, we really need to update that plan, uh, get it eventually approved by your council. Uh, we have um, dusted off the, the old work that we had done. We've met with Coastal Commission regarding that plan. We've met with Beacon, and now we're planning to get with the Pierpont community members uh, to review that and the need for doing the plan in the first place, and then uh, hopefully advance that project to find a, uh, a solution, a plan that all stakeholders, including the residents, um, can agree with and move forward. The, there's an impetus to do that in that it affects our ability to do this, the sand removal along Pierpont that we're, we are required to by court order. Uh, we could remove the sand, but we're running out of places to put it. And until we can complete this management plan, uh, we can't put it back on the beach. And so that's why we're, we want to get this one done. 
We also have the Harbor Keys dredging. Uh, we're working on a revised maintenance plan uh, to hopefully reduce the cost of performing that dredging from time to time. We are anticipating to uh, dredge the, the keys probably FY25 to 27. It really depends on what the bottom looks like, how much sediment is accumulated. After the recent storms, we did go out with the Harbor Master and took some soundings along the keys. And in all the navigable channel areas, we have depths between 8 and 12 feet, which is very acceptable. Uh, the more shallow areas are off to the sides or maybe some of the private uh, dock areas. Uh, so we're still looking at our FY25 to 27 uh, dredging of the, of the channel. And we'll work on that. A couple of other good news items, the Weymouth Stormwater Lift Station will be going out to bid on March 30th and will be going into construction in the summer. And then the, the big news really is the Surface Point Phase 2. So we have put, submitted a grant application with, um, with uh, the Convert Conservancy uh, Commission, about a $16.2 million grant. We expect to receive all of those funds, which will fully fund the construction and hope to be in construction, go out to bid later this year, be in construction later in the fall or in the summer. And then finally, some temporary repairs that had to be done in the coastal area due to the storms. Uh, we have pier damage that I think everyone's aware of. We're estimating around $650,000 right now with the contractors replaced two of the nine pilings and, and we'll continue to do that work. We still need to get in the water underneath and check all everything underneath. We're waiting for the water quality to come to a level where we can put a diver in the water. That should be very soon. And we think we'll have the pier open, hopefully, uh, barring any damage we're not aware of, in about maybe six to eight weeks. Uh, you may also know that um, the northern half up in Surfers Point, a lot of erosion where the, the bike path uh, on the property owned by the fairgrounds. We worked with them, took some of the parking stalls, and we've moved the bike path inland a little bit. So we've restored that bike path at the expense of some parking. But all that area gets reworked with Surfers Point. The shoreline gets restored, new bike path. So this will only be a temporary measure. We are working on removing all the debris on the beach. We'll leave some behind per Coastal Commission's request just to maintain a natural environment because there's always some uh, natural native debris that's on the, on the beach. Uh, and that, that really concludes what we're doing so far in coastal preservation. Thank you. Can I ask one quick question? So the sand removal project, so when we remove the sand from the Pierpont beaches, mm -hmm. from kind of one end of the beaches, we can't pick it up and then put it on like the northern end because we don't have a sand management plan? Uh, correct. We don't have Coastal Commission's permission to do that. We've done that in the past, uh, but within the last year, they have halted us in being able to deposit it back on the beach until we complete this plan. So thank we've been having to dispose of it inland. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Mr. Nelson. And lastly, Mr. Cohen on the ERP. Yes. So the ERP project um, is going well. We just started uh, this month with the what we call phase zero, the strategic planning phase. So we're working on kind of you know, governance models and get it, getting everything set up for the implementation phase, which begins next week. Um, and so we ha currently have brought on various different positions to backfill for the employees that are gonna be working primarily on the ERP implementation. Um, and so we're moving forward. Like I said, the first phase is the HR phase. As a reminder, we anticipate going live next December. 
um, on that first phase, and then finances, we anticipate going live June, well, July 1, 2024. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Mr. Mayor, that concludes the presentation portion of this item. If there's any questions on the balance of the council goals, staff is available to address those. Thanks. Okay. Any comments or questions? Okay, I'll move on to Mr. City Clerk. We got any public comments? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have two speaker cards on item number 17. Our first speaker is George Amendola, followed by Spencer Norin. Hi, good evening, everyone. <clears throat> it's been a long night. The, uh, the last hearing was about the property dispute was sort of exhausting, especially when uh, I believe it could have been handled at the staff level if staff followed the policy. Staff didn't follow the policy that was in place, and so we had a dispute. And that leads me to my comments about the goal setting and um, the lack of broadband policy within the city. Um, I believe that within the staff report, there are various updates about economic development, GPAC, and broadband. And broadband is listed as staff time as low priority. I believe that um, it's just, we're going down a pathway relying on sci-fi and the contract for sci-fi to do a development which is yet to be tested. Sci-fi hasn't done anything, and staff is relying very heavily on sci-fi to fulfill its obligation. What was really interesting to me is, here we are after all this time, we still have no master broadband policy. The speaker at the beginning of the meeting from CAPS, who everybody praised, for um, what great work they do and how reliant they are on the community, how reliant the city is on having um, the funding at no cost to the city, but from uh, surcharges from the cable franchise bill. And that's being overlooked as a revenue generator for the city as we approach cable cutting. Now, why do I bring this up? People are streaming services. They're not relying on cable. They rely on broadband. Broadband is a replacement for cable. These last mile connectivities are essential services. The revenue stream to the city uh, may reach a point where there may not be enough revenue to come in and support TAPS because of cable cutting and, and replacing cable services with more direct fiber connectivity. Again. If there was a master broadband policy, looking at this problem holistically from a citywide perspective, that may help us down the line, not because of the people here today, but the people 10 years, 20 years from now. It, yes, maybe it's hard work, but it's long overdue, and it's essential, not only for the revenue generating for the city, but for the services to the citizens, for the businesses, and uh, looking at everything in silos, the way uh, the agendas have been passed through to you tonight, there's no holistic viewpoint within a master broadband policy. And it affects six, seven items on the agenda tonight. And I'll be speaking about those coming up. Thank you. Our next and final speaker is Spencer Norin.
Thank you, Michael. Mayor, Council. Just wanted to make a couple little brief points here about the plan and the update the progress. Number one, I didn't see a transportation plan and the update on that. I know the last few years, uh, Director Hereford and a lot of the great employees have been working on new lights and restructuring how our lights work. How many times are we going to sit going left on Ramelli off telephone? I mean, we've all wasted days and years off certain lights in our town. They've been this way for 20 years. I think that should be a high priority. Number two, moving into that is Main Street moves. I think I saw that 20%. This is something that our community is being reminded of every single day. Main Street moves is now the identity of our community, of a place to be able to go outside, mingle, socialize, as this new age post-pandemic. I think it should be a higher priority on the list. Number three would be our global climate action plan. What are we doing right now for climate change? What are we doing right now to show our community how we're making climate change action? It starts with urban forestry, continuing to plant trees, manicures trees, give more support to our parks and rec division, public works through our urban forestry, and get the equipment we need to take care of the problems ourselves. Thank you. And that concludes our speakers on item number 17. Council deliberations <clears throat> and or a motion. Any deliberations? I'm open to a motion. I move to receive and file. Do I have a second? A second. We ready to vote? All right, you can go ahead and enter your vote now to receive and file on item number 17. Okay, all votes have been entered. Seven ayes and the motion carries. Thank you much. Mr. Kuhn, fiscal year 24 budget workshop number one. That sounded funny. 2024. All right. Good evening, Mayor, members of City Council. Um, excited to be here tonight for this budget workshop number one to get things kicked off uh, for a budget process. Um, as you have me here with you tonight, the Michael Kuhn, the CFO. Um, to my right, we have Greg Morley, the Assistant CFO, and then to my left, Pam Townsend, the Financial Services Manager. Um, so tonight, we are going to be covering three different items. So the first item, we'll, you know, we're just gonna give you a glimpse of what the next few months are going to look like as we go through the budget process. For the second item, we're going to go over the current fiscal year, um, look at how despite the, you know, some of the concerns with the current economy, things are looking relatively good. And then third, we're going to hit the five-year financial outlook for the general fund and look at how there does appear to be some uh, additional resources that will be available in the outlook, um, but also there'll be a lot of competing resources for those revenue sources. So with that being said, we'll uh, move on through the presentation. So this slide before you here, I just want to give a, an introduction of to all of the different funds that we have in the city. So we have 34 funds, um, or what you may refer to as different accounting entities um, in the city. 
um, that we budget for. And so we have our governmental funds, and those are going to be th things you'd typically think more um, governmental services. And then we have our pr pr proprietary funds, which are funds that are treated a little bit more like, like business. Um, and so under the governmental funds, we have the general fund, which is our largest fund. And then we have our special revenue funds. I'm not going to read the whole list, um, but just know in general, if there's a special restriction that we have attached to a, a revenue um, that tends to go in a special revenue fund, we have the capital project funds, we have funds for debt service, and then the proprietary side, we have our water, wastewater enterprise funds, and then we also have internal service funds or funds that provide services to all the other funds and charge for those services. And so that's just a high level overview of all the different funds we'll become more familiar with um, and be discussing throughout the budget process. Um, as we are working on the budget process, um, it is ruled by the charter. Um, so this charter stipulates that the budget is proposed by May 1st of each year and then adopted by June 30th. And then also as we are working on adopting the budget each year, um, we bring back with the budget um, for council approval the financial policies um, our APMP 14.7. Um, so you'll be seeing that as well coming up. Here's just a quick calendar of the events, you know, starting June 23rd today, budget workshop number one, moving toward the anticipated adoption date of the budget on June 12th. Um, so this chart has the um, meetings with city council and with the finance audit and budget or fab committee. Um, and as you can see, um, there will be, uh, we'll be meeting regularly and discussing the budget um, at least once a month um, from now until June. And so this is just a quick overview of city council goals. I, city council is where aware, well aware you're about to embark upon the goal setting process for next fiscal year this Saturday. Um, so I'm, you know, this is just a reminder that you know of how those goals fit into the process. Right, we're just getting started with this budget process, um, and so I'll be you know as we go talking, we'll be talking about how staff uses the goal set established by city council as we're balancing the budget. Um, so like I said. These are just the goals for the current year, but we're excited to see the new goals for the upcoming year coming shortly. And here on this slide, we have um, different, the different factors that we look at when we're compiling a budget. Um, so really we have two different um, categories that we look at. We have our revenues. Um, so these are things like the, the water revenues, property tax, sales tax, um, charges for services, and we have our expenditures. You know, how much does it cost to provide our core services? Are there any um, in additional payments need to be made for PERS or the pensions? Are there any new initiatives? And so all this money, or all these items, are taken, gathered together, um, and then formulated into the proposed budget. And so typically, though, when we're when we're gathering the revenues, when we're gathering the expenditures, there's typically a little bit of an imbalance. You know. You, you, I've never heard of a situation, it's not impossible that it happens, where a budget is perfectly balanced when, when all the requests come in. Um, so typically we have a situation where maybe the expenditures are a little bit more um, than, or expenditure requests are a little bit more than the resources available. Um, so in that instance, you know, what does staff do as we're developing the budget? Um, so we go to the city council budget principles that have been established by city council. Um, there's 12 here. I'm not going to read them all. 
Um, these are available in the budget book. Um, these are the same principles staff has been using um, for a number of years now. And then also there's specific principles for Measure O um, that were adopted with the input of the Measure O committee and city council. Um, and so when there, is a, when there are questions about how to balance the budget, staff looks to these principles and also the goals established by city council in making decisions on how to um, prepare a balanced proposed budget. And so we are anticipating presenting that balanced proposed budget to city council at the meeting on April 24th. Um, you know, in there we will be highlighting the general fund, the utility funds, water wastewater measure O, capital funds, and we'll have a high level summary of the other funds, and we'll also have an updated look at the five-year forecast you'll see later in the presentation tonight. Um, then additionally, we'll have, we have two workshops scheduled with city council to discuss the budget. One will be on March 20th before the proposed budget. Um, so at this point, staff were, were, like I said, we have received the request from the, finance received the request from the departments. We're starting the process this week of reviewing those requests with the departments. After that, those requests will be reviewed with the city manager. At that point, after the city manager has um, reviewed the requests, we will come back, kind of do a high-level summary with city council and discuss um, some of the prioritization decisions that we'll be facing during the budget process. Um, and then after the budget's proposed, on May 15th, we'll look at um, another budget workshop to discuss any additional follow-up items. And then also wanted to highlight the user fee process. Um, so each year, the city goes and we update our user fees or charges for services. Now we have a two-year cycle so in even years, staff goes and we look at every fee, we do a comprehensive study on every fee. And then in odd years, we look at, we look at maybe examining a few fees that need special review and a CIP increase. So this would be the, on year, the, the odd year. Um, so this year, you anticipate a little, like I said, you know, a little shorter presentation when it comes to user fees and really looking at CIP with maybe tweaks on a few revenues here and there. Um, and then um, after that, we'll move towards the budget adoption. So we have scheduled for budget adoption June 12th. Um, however, June 26th is also available um, if needed so we can meet the, um, the deadlines of adopting the budget by June 30th. All right, and as we are moving along the budget process in these next few months, some things that are, um, some considerations that are going to occur um, as, um, Valley of Barroso brought, brought, brought up um, just a few moments ago, the, class and comp the classification compensation study is pending. Um, that will play, you know, the, the financial cost of implementing how that is implemented will play a role in the budget process. Um, there is still economic uncertainty due to inflation, changing interest rates, um, possible concerns about, you know, you know, how much the economy will slow down. And then you're looking at staffing program needs, you know, related to workload increases or relating to, to city council priorities um, that will be established uh, you know, coming up at the goal setting meeting. Um, looking at the impact of changes to the PERS, um, you know, the PERS discount rates or pension costs moving into the future, and then also adequately funding and maintaining um, city assets. And so those are all the things that we'll look to consider throughout this budget process. And with that being said, we'll move to the financial update um, for the current fiscal year. 
Um, so I'm just gonna briefly outline the chart that we have in front of us. You'll see this chart a few more times um, for the various major funds that we highlight in the presentation tonight. On the left, you can see the actuals. Um, we have two years of audited actuals, FY 2020, FY 2021, and one year of unaudited actuals. Um, the, so the audit um, has not yet been completed for that. And then on the right of the chart in the lighter blue, we have the current budget and the estimate for the current year. So looking at the general fund, um, you know, we can see the revenues, um, you know, the, the line, we can see the, the trend in revenue increases. Also, I think it is important to note when you look at FY21, FY, FY22, there were some large one-time payments. Um, so for ARPA, you know, 8.2 million split between each years. You know, FY21 had some additional one-time payments as well. Um, and then looking at this year, you know, the, the, the projected, or the budget is 145.5 million. And we're projecting the revenues will come in slightly under that. And I'll, as we go to the next slide, I'll, I'll highlight a little bit of um, some, um, some areas in the revenues um, that we're seeing that will kind of provide a little bit more context on that for the revenues. And then on the expenditure side, we're projecting the, the, the spending will be about two and a half million dollars less um, than is currently budgeted, primarily driven by, uh, um, by personnel savings. So um, there's a lot of numbers, a lot of information on this slide for you tonight. This information is in your packet. And there's also information on a lot of these revenue categories provided in our budget document. Um, also, staff from finance are always available to answer any questions. But I'm really going to highlight some of the key revenue categories that are driving, um, that are driving the, um, what we're seeing in the revenues for the current fiscal year. So first I want to highlight property tax and sales tax. Um, so this year due to like a, a slowing in the economy, we are projecting that we will see lower property tax and sales tax than was um, budgeted for the current fiscal year. Um, and then looking for charges for services, we're seeing, you know, we're seeing fairly strong charges for services across the board. However, we have gone and we have accounted for some lost revenue at the golf course due to the recent flooding. Um, and so that is the primary reason why we see um, a forecasted um, decrease of $800,000 in revenues for charges for services. You know, at the end of the day, though, we do anticipate seeing revenue increases in the other categories. And so at the end of the day, when we look at the ongoing revenues or those revenues at the top of the chart, we, are, we do anticipate that we'll be, you know, a little over $1 million better than budget. And then going down looking um, at our internal transfer and prior resources, our internal transfers are, you know, money moving between funds. So it's not new money coming in. Prior year resources um, is a budget tool that we use to balance the budget when we plan on spending fund balance. So we're never gonna see actuals hit this line item, um, but basically what we're saying is, hey, we have an expense where we plan on spending fund balance, so we're gonna budget, the, we're gonna budget revenue and prior resources so that we have an offset and a balanced budget. So for the current year, um, you know, there, we're, we're anticipating you know, that there'll be expenditures of about $8.6 million um, related to prior year resources, and that primarily is related to the one-time investment plan monies that are being moved to various CIP projects um, to, to fund those in accordance um, with the investment plan. And so at the end of the day, for revenues, like I said, we are 
projecting a slight decrease, but really it's related to we're thinking we're going to use a little less fund balance than we thought we would. Um, and so that's the high-level summary for the general fund revenues. Looking at the expenditures, um, here on your left you see the departments that we have in the general fund. All but two of the two of the departments show up in the general fund. Those two departments that do not show up would be IT and Ventura Water. Um, like I said, most of the um, most of the, you know several of the departments are close to budget. There are a couple differences I wanted to point out. When we look at um, community development and public works, we are anticipating large savings related primarily to personnel savings. And then on the flip side, in police and fire, we're anticipating some overages primarily in personnel related to overtime and various, various different staffing requirements that those two departments have. Um, but in, at the end of the day, we are anticipating that expenditures will be about $2.5 million less than is currently budgeted in the general fund. And so when we look at the you know, anticipated budget for revenues, anticipated budget for expenditures, there's a net of, of about $1.3 million for projected for the current fiscal year. Um, moving on to Measure O, like I said, very similar slide. We have the revenues on top. The columns are the expenditures. I mean, really, um, you know, one of the key stories in Measure O, one of the reasons why we see differences between revenues and expenditures are the, 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 the cycle that we use for CIP. You know, so we'll plan, we'll budget money for a CIP process, and typically it takes a while to execute those projects. Um, so looking at the current year, you know, there's a $24 million um, included in the budget for the current fiscal year. Of that, we're, we're anticipating that we'll spend about $17 million, and that really the, the vast majority of that is just you know, CIP funding that will be deferred from the current year to future years, although still plan to be spent in those future years. Um, and really, like I said, the revenue, similar to the general fund, really it's just we're planning on using less fund balance in the current fiscal year. Um, we are, like I said, similar to sales tax, the measure O tax, we are, we are expecting to see a small decrease. Um, we're th you know, in, the, in, the, in measure O, it's a, the decrease in sales tax and over the budgeted value is about $600,000. Uh, moving on to water operations, um, you know, here, obviously a similar slide on the left-hand side, we can see, you know, we, we typically have, you know, revenues over expenses in the um, water world, and when this happens, really this is creating money that goes to funding projects like the water pipeline that was approved earlier tonight. And then looking at the budget for the current fiscal year, the budget is $37.8 million. You know, we're thinking that revenues will come in slightly higher than that. You know, it'll be a little higher than budget, but a little less than last fiscal year. And the reason for the drop compared to last fiscal year is just due to the drought, due to, you know, the Ventura resident, Ventura community implementing watering restrictions. Um, we're, we're anticipating a little less revenue than the prior year. On the expenditure side, um, in water, those savings are primarily driven by um, by salary savings um, in Ventura um, in the water fund. And so like I said, we're, we're anticipating there'll be about $700,000 of, of savings on the, expend, on the expense side for the water fund. Uh, moving on to the wastewater fund, like I said, once again, similar story. Um, we do typically see revenues over expenses. Um, and those, like I said, those gaps go to them produce available money for CIP projects. For the current year, 
the anticipated or the budget is $27.7 million. We, we are thinking we'll see a slight increase above the budget for revenues um, on the wastewater side. On the expenditure side, we are thinking you know, we'll see a little bit more of a savings than we are seeing in water. Um, you know, about a, a million dollars of that related to personnel savings and then another six, $600,000 related to savings and the other line items for supplies and services. So with that being said, um, like I said, for the, for the current year, you know, the, our major funds, they're all, like I said, you know, they're, some are looking tighter than others. Um, there are you know, concerns we're continuing to monitor regarding the economic conditions we're currently experiencing. But all in all, um, as of the current date, things are looking relatively well in the major funds for the city. Thank you, Michael. Um, and thank you, Mayor, City Council. Uh, my name is Pam Townsend, and this is my first time in front of you as your financial services manager, so thank you so much for letting me join you. Um, I know that it's late, but I do want to have one very brief pause just to quickly talk about what a five-year outlook is and why we provide it. Um, first, it's really a snapshot. It's a tool that we want to give you to create a baseline. I also think it's very important for us to mention where we are in the budget process. Um, the information that you're going to see in this five-year outlook was essentially everything that we knew up until January 3rd when we ran these reports um, and all of the information that we have from our outside consultants or other folks that can help us make uh, better forecasting decisions. I will quick, quickly walk you through all of the assumptions that are in there, but I also think that it's very important that I note um, that we have just begun the budgeting process. These numbers will absolutely change um, when we, we are going to continue to monitor revenues and meet with our outside consultants. We are going to take the information that we have from departments. We are going to take the information that we have from council after you uh, finalize your goals. Um, and we are going to build that into our budget. What you're looking at right now, uh, here are five out years. Uh, FY24 is, of course, the year we're about to build our budget for. Um, as it stands right now, uh, we were estimating about $2.5 million um, expenditures under revenues. Um, that tightens up um, very much in FY25. Uh, a little bit of a gap in 26 tightens up again in the out years. Now, please do not get too excited about this because I am going to walk you through some of the assumptions of what is and is not included in this. Uh, so revenue and resource assumptions, um, in that uh, forecast, we are estimating that property tax will continue to grow, but at a modest and slower pace than it uh, did in prior years. Uh, we're also estimating that sales tax will have relatively flat growth in FY24, but will continue to rise in the out years. Um, other taxes we are estimating will have a relatively flat growth as well in FY24, but will increase in growth in the out years. And the use of prior year resources, as Michael touched upon earlier, um, it was mostly attributable to investment plan, um, and that is not forecast in FY24 and beyond. As far as expenditures are concerned, um, some items that are included, um, this is true of most funds, uh, the largest component of personnel, or the largest component of uh, expenditures comes in personnel costs. We are anticipating significant increases in the out years to some pension costs. Those have been built into this. Um, we also added uh, estimates for two police officers. That was added from the dais back in September, um, mid-year of FY23. And here's where um, we want to, 
put a little asterisk next to our five-year forecast because as you can see, we have quite a bit that is not built into this forecast, including impacts from the classification and compensation study that is pending, um, any additional FY24 staff requests, as I said, we are still building that budget, um, any pending results, we have two uh, ongoing ISF rate studies, information technology and fleet. Um, those impacts are not built into this forecast. Um, uh, capital and operating increases for the fire strategic plan, not included. Increased funding to address deferred maintenance and unfunded CIP projects, also not included. And any potential impact from making an additional discretionary payment or ADP to CalPERS, we will be coming back to Council on February 13th to discuss some potential impacts that that could have um, on, on our future budgets. Um, but I just wanted to point this out because when we were looking at FY25 and we were seeing just razor thin margins, depending on the decisions that we make here, some of those razor thin margins are going to get very thin. And with that, uh, the recommendation we have to council is to receive and file um, the mid-year financial update for the four primary funds and the five-year forecast. Thank you. Comments from City Council. Councilmember Johnson. Thank you. As we get into the uh, budget process, I, I would ask that um, we also get a, a detailed look at the, where we are with the one-time investment plan, uh, which monies have been spent, which have not been spent. Um, I do have a question, or, or really just a comment about, let's say, slide 21. And I, I just wanted to note that, you know, at the top it's measure O resources, but, but clearly that's revenue, correct? That's not prior year resources included, right? That is resources to revenues and prior revenue. Oh, so that does include, okay, because then at the bottom it's, it says the line is revenue, but that's include, it's actually revenue plus prior year resources. Yes. Would we be able to get uh, something that explains what is the revenue and what is the prior year resources carried over in a visual form at, at a that. future budget workshop? Thank you. Um, and then the other thing um, that I would like when we look work through our budget, um, could, would it be possible to get uh, sort of a summary where we are on what we would call um, the unspent salary, the salary savings that we have from and things and just to see exactly where we are and compare that to some of the assumptions that we've made in the budget because I know we've we've predicted salary savings but I'd be curious to see how those line up yes we predict we've predicted um, you said three million dollars of salary savings yeah yeah so the vacancy factor is three million dollars um, like I said an overall you know like I said we'll, we'll, we can get you an exact number but we're, we're anticipating you know it'll be about four and a half million. Okay, thank you so much. Those are my comments. Thank you, Mayor. Other questions? I have one on um, the lost revenue at Buena Golf Course. Um, is it accurate to say that we have business interruption insurance or do we have insurance that covers the lost revenue because the course isn't open?
Yes, his one on mute. But yeah, uh, Greg's, Greg's been leading the efforts from finance. Um, the answer is yes. And so was that considered in the projected loss of $800,000? Or did you just say that that's the normal revenue that we would get in anything we get back from insurance is gravy? Yeah, we haven't anticipated any um, insurance recoveries just because oftentimes due to the timing, um, we're not quite sure what, um, what fiscal year that will come in. More than likely, it probably will not come this fiscal year. U usually those things take a little bit of time to get settled. So it would be in next fiscal year? That's my hunch, is more than likely we'd see some one-time money next fiscal year for insurance recovery. Okay. Um, Council Member Halter? Yeah, just one quick question, and that's um, in regards to uh, the severity of the, the rainstorms we've had. Uh, how do we ever accommodate for uh, the impact on our infrastructure and the roadways? And I mean, there's, it doesn't take, you just go in a block before you realize that the roads are pretty beat up right now. So I'm not quite sure how we actually are able to budget for something like that. So, so in part, there's, there's about $300,000 of contingencies built into the general fund budget in the general fund that, that, are, that are available. There's reserves that are available. Um, obviously, insurance is a key part um, when it comes to storms. Um, and you know, you know, depending on the severity of the storm, also FEMA um, can get involved and the federal government can provide some aid and the state government can provide um, aid as well sometimes. I can see that, great, thank you. Mr. McReynolds? I assume there's not really any money coming in on interest rates on the positive side in terms of cash we have on hand that we're receiving higher interest rate? No, so we are, we are currently seeing increases to the um, inter interest revenues coming in from the investment portfolio. And so part of it, um, when we look at the investment portfolio, the invest investment portfolio spread out over five years. Um, and so we have older investments that are maturing. And as though those are maturing, they may be maturing at, you know, 75 basis points, or, you, know, uh, you know, 75, you know, under 1%. Um, but where, you know, rates not, may not be at five and a half, six percent 6% anymore, but I can still buy something today for four and a half, which is higher than the one lower than so we are still seeing increases um, to the investment earnings, um, and those are those are projected in the current year um, and next year as well. And then on slide twenty seven is the uh, items not included in the budget, uh, so we're projecting for one hundred one hundred and forty four point two million in revenue, one hundred and forty three million in expenditures, which leaves us about one point two million dollars fund everything on that list? So I think on the expenditure slide, you may have been looking at the FY23 numbers. Right. Um, so when you look at the FY24 numbers, um, that will show, uh, so for next year, 137.6 and 135.1. Um, so a little bit more, but yes, there's, there's a lot on the lists that will be competing for what we currently have projected available um, as revenues for next year. And in terms of the classification and compensation study, um, when are we gonna get that impact? I mean, I know we're, the study's scheduled to be wrapped up by the end of next month, potentially, but then are you putting the number on that? Yeah, so we, we've been having some conversations with HR. You know, we had a meeting with HR and the consultants to talk about the numbers. 
um, we've kind of settled on the methodology. Um, and like, that's one of the things that we presented um, is the results of that, but we can anticipate it will be in the millions of dollars. We're expecting that in the March? Yeah, February, late we'll, February. We'll get both the, the cost and the study at the same time? Yes. Okay, thank you. Mr. Uh, if there's no other questions or comments, um, comments from the public? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. We do have one speaker card, and uh, our speaker is George Amendola. Michael, can you go to slide number eight, please? Can you restart the clock, too? Thanks. Appreciate it. So, uh, for me, this is an interesting slide, uh, talking about budget factors, expenditures. And you see on the far right, the small little dot that says tech. There's a component in there which I think is essential for the city, and that's cybersecurity. Um, the city of Ventura has received two grand jury reports from the county, um, referencing shortfalls in um, cybersecurity readiness. In essence, um, the United States of America is on a war footing facing nation-state threat actors. Um, our essential services are potentially impacted by that. I know that's hard to comprehend because it's an intangible, but the city's already experienced uh, some issues. And I want to just point out that now is the time to budget for it in support of IT, support of Mitchell. Um, uh, regulation says it's at the board of directors level, the requirement for compliance under the California Consumer Privacy Act. Um, the city of Ventura is bound by that and um, ensuring cybersecurity best practices in, in line with um, frameworks like the NIST 800 are essential. The city of Ventura is not ready from an admin side, from a police and fire side, and from a water essential services side. So I would encourage uh, a 10% carve out of the IT budget to be built into this budget to help out with that. Some other observations, just quickly pivoting if we can. Um, police, fire, police specifically. I remember with uh, Council Member, uh, I'm sorry, City Manager McIntyre, Police Chief Sindler, Council Lobby to get more police resources. And I know it's difficult for me to bring this up without Chief Schindler here. You've got two extra positions budgeted. He may need more as it affects cybersecurity. So I would suggest having a conversation with him about that. Um, further, um, slide numbers 22 and 23, if we can. Um, I'm pointing this out because it struck me in the FAB meeting, looking at this slide, it almost looks like with the rate increases to the consumer rate payers, it almost looks like this has become a profit center now. And I don't think it's supposed to be viewed as a profit center. So I, I just want to point that out for further discussion. Um, can we go back to slide number 16? Sorry to bounce around on you, Michael. Measure O. Um, what was interesting here to me was the bullet point number two, economic uncertainty due to inflation, changing interest rates. And I would also suggest if there's any kind of cyber incident that could create economic uncertainty. The city has experienced that already. Thank you. 
That concludes public comment on item number 18. Thank you. Council deliberation or a motion? I'm open to and will entertain a motion. I'll nope. move to uh, receive mid-year financial uh, update and uh, for primary funds and receive the general fund five-year forecast. Do I have a second? Second. second. I think we're ready for a vote, Mr. City Clerk. Okay, on item number 18 to receive and file, go ahead and enter your vote now. Great, all votes have been entered. Seven ayes and the motion carries. If I'm not mistaken, I think, I, thank you very much, uh, finance group. Um, for, for a first trip here, we didn't beat you up too much, did we? Okay, <laughs> thanks. Um, I think I need a motion to go on past 10 o'clock. What's the uh, favor of the city council? So move to continue after 10. Do I have a second? Second. A vote, please. Mr. City Clerk? Sure, and uh, motion on hearing a new item beyond 10. Go ahead and vote. Just a reminder, we will have to do a, a, an additional motion to extend the meeting past 11 if we get there. Go ahead and enter your vote. Looks like we're waiting on one more vote. Okay, all votes have been entered. Six ayes, one no, the motion carries. Mr. Nelson, we're in the ninth inning and you're up. Thank you again, Mr. Mayor, Madam Deputy Mayor, members of the council. For the record, I'm Phil Nelson, your public works director. Tonight we are transmitting the proposed changes for the capital improvement program. Topics that we'll cover tonight are just a, an overview of the CIP, how it's put together and developed, and it, how the um, book is laid out. Uh, incumbent council members have the book from last year, new members I provided a book earlier this year, uh, and that's the book that I'll be referring to. Then I'll discuss the proposed changes to the current CIP, uh, potential conflicts of interest in our next steps. I do want to point out that tonight is not intended to talk about any specific projects. Uh, we have reserved uh, a workshop for February the 27th for that conversation. And of course, I invite all the council members, uh, happy to talk with you between now and then on anything you'd like to discuss, questions, explanation, projects you're interested in, that sort of thing. So just to kind of lay the landscape, what the CIP is all about, it's uh, the city has many capital assets that it owns and it has uh, developed over the many decades that precede us, invested by our citizens. You can see on the screen just a few of those categories and the numbers, and I provide that just to give a sense of sale, scale and scope uh, to what the CIP is all about. It's, it really represents a significant financial investment or reinvestment in the infrastructure that makes our city work. The program is developed, uh, it's a five-year program developed annually, required by the city charter. It is a systematic plan for maintaining that infrastructure that I just described on the previous slide. Also, the infrastructure that might be needed to meet any new requirements, either new services, new regulatory requirements, and so forth. 
and it is required to be adopted by a public hearing by resolution before April the 1st each year. I'll be using some terms in the presentation, so just for some clarity, I put them on the screen. The first is the uh, Capital Improvement Program, CIP. Sometimes it's re referred to as Capital Improvement Plan. Those all are saying the same thing. It's that five-year charter requirement, that five-year plan. And the plan itself, when your council uh, approves it, you're authorizing staff to work on those projects as laid out in the work plan and as approved budgets exist for doing that work. The, the CIP really consists of two main components. The first is the work plan. That is uh, the list of projects with um, a spending plan for the five-year period um, that we are developing uh, at least for the, the coming fiscal year, the budgets to support that, but it's the authorization for the work, for the projects that we're to actively work on over the next five years. We also have in the CIP the projects that we have submitted grants for, and we're waiting and hopeful that we will receive approval for those grants. If they do come in, then those grants will move into the work plan according to what we have developed and according to funding and staff availability and other things, but it is considered part of the CIP and already authorized by your council should the grant be awarded. And then also in the book, really not part of the plan, but we provide is, are all the unplanned projects. So these are all of the requirements that we've identified uh, for which we have no available funding or haven't identified funding and we have no plan for working on over the next five years and we're not authorized to do so. If council did want to uh, fund or authorize one of those projects and move that into the CIP, we do that throughout the year as requirements um, come up. Uh, so that part of the CIP is really provided to give your council a view of the full scope of requirements uh, that we have for maintaining the infrastructure. We developed the CIP in a two-year cycle. Uh, we are in year two. I'll first describe year one, which was this time last year. It was the development of a completely new book. We started in the fall, as you'll see on the next screen, gathering the requirements and reworking all of the projects, the estimates, the funding, and develop a whole new, actually six-year program in that first year. We only publish years one through five in the book, but we work out a six-year program. And as you can imagine from what I described, it's a pretty heavy lift. It's a lot of staff time. It's a lot of work. The CIP doesn't change dramatically year to year, and that's why in this year, year two, all we're really doing is taking in new requirements, adjusting the work plan for what we'll work on next fiscal year, and then we leave pretty much the rest of it alone. We don't touch it too much because really the bulk of our work is going to be next year, and that's what we're addressing. Beginning probably in July, August is when we will start the process of developing a whole new book, that year one cycle. Uh, so just as a reminder, this is that off year. I mentioned we develop a six-year plan. We essentially take years two through six, move them to the left. They become years one through five now, and then we make adjustments to year one for what we really think we're going to be working on next year. This is the process that's laid out, abbreviated in this year of year two, uh, more detailed in year one, but it really is the same steps. We do a needs assessment. so. Earlier this year, we went out and, and reviewed any other requirements that had come up, asked uh, staff and other uh, stakeholder groups 
um, studies we may have done over the year and other sources and identified those projects. We go through scoping and estimating and then prioritizing them, which I'll talk about what that looks like. Then we look at the funding that's available for those projects, the higher priority ones, and the staffing that's available. Um, and make sure that we're in alignment there, that what we plan to execute, we can actually execute. And from that, we develop the proposed plan. And that's really what we're presenting tonight is not a full plan, but uh, a description of the projects that we're adding and changes that we'll be making uh, to the plan that's already approved. Then we'll be moving into the stakeholder review, which is mostly that period between now uh, and into the end of February, maybe the very beginning of March. Uh, we will receive more public input. The study session I mentioned with your council at the end of February, we'll meet with the Planning Commission, the Water Commission, and the Parks Commission as well to get that input. And then finally, the plan approval on March, I think it's the 27th this year, with a resolution and adoption before the um, April 1st charter deadline. As a reminder, when you look at the plan, and you'll see spending over multiple years for most of the projects. I want to remind the council that if they're spending in the first year, that probably means we're not in construction. And so a lot of people, of course, they just want to know when are we going to build it? When are we going to do it? And what I've got on the screen here is to show that there is a lot of work that takes place before we get to construction. That if you look at the timeline of a project, really is probably the majority of the time of a project. The construction phase is pretty, is pretty short in comparison. Of course, the most money is spent in construction, the shortest amount of time. And typically, a project will be 18 to 24 months in total. Some, like Ventura Water Pure, of course, are going to be much longer. So how do we do our prioritization? Well, we, we have it on a risk-benefit-based system. And what does that mean? Well, first, we identify a primary driver. What, what's the reason for doing this project? Why, why, do we, why is it important? Why are we putting it on the list? And then we go through an analysis where we look at either, does this project mitigate a risk? And I'll talk, talk about what that means. Or does it provide an additional benefit? And by doing this project, what is the impact of that? And the likelihood, if it's a risk, what's the likelihood of that bad thing happening? If it's a benefit, what's the likelihood of the, of the project delivering on that benefit? How significant would it be uh, to the public? And then finally, from that, we put that in one of four buckets, if you will, with a priority one project being the top critical project, priority four being the lowest. And they're in those groupings. That's how we look at them when we're looking to schedule them and um, identify funding and staffing. That doesn't mean we, we only do the, the number ones and when we're done we do number twos and when we're done we do number threes. You'll see in the current work plans we're working on priority threes today. And that's because um, maybe it was the available funding or the staffing or other factors that went into play. Priority ones, however, those, uh, we're working on those. That's what priority one means. And I'll talk about that in a minute, kind of a little more detail on each of the levels. So when I talk about project drivers, what does that mean? Well, I, I believe there's really only three reasons why we do anything. And I apply that to the CIP. The first is to mitigate a risk. So what kind of a risk? Well, it could be a health and life safety risk. It could be a regulatory or legal risk to the city. Could be a financial loss if we don't do this, or uh, the preservation or restoration of an essential city service. Those are the kind of risks that we're trying to mitigate. The other reason, as I mentioned, is to deliver a benefit, something that we want. 
That might be a new or enhanced uh, city service. It might be cost savings in the operations. It might be something we do that uh, stimulates economic development and vitality in the community, which in turn would generate additional revenues for city government to do other things and maybe deliver other services. So those are the kind of benefits most of these projects would deliver. And then the last reason would simply be uh, council priority, be something that your council has directed us to do as a project or maybe it advances um, one or more of your goals which you're about to establish. Or we just know from conversations and council meetings these particular projects are of, of interest. You may not have taken an official action, but we just know that these are of interest to the council in general. I'd like to point out an example of, I mentioned, like a lower priority. Sometimes the feeling is those projects never get done. The way they get done is usually because there's something that is uh, council's very interested in and has made it part of a goal or even gone as far as directing. And a good example would be the community park second entrance. It was a very low priority, low priority project for many years. No funding identified. We weren't doing anything with it. And a, a couple of years ago, the council um, decided this was extremely important and directed staff to work on that project the next year. That action made it a priority one. Uh, we identified the funding, and as you know, that project's been completed. So that's an example of maybe how a lower priority project might get elevated to a higher priority. So what does the system look like? As I mentioned, the critical, the priority one, by definition, there should be fewer of these. Uh, not surprisingly, most um, people requesting projects feel that their projects should be a priority one. The criteria I try to explain to people is if we're not currently actively working at it and have funding, and it becomes a priority one, then we will do whatever it takes to find funding. If that means take it from another project, take it from a program, whatever it takes, we will identify funding to be working on it in the next fiscal year. That's a priority one project. So if we're not willing to do that, then it's not a priority one, it's a priority two. It's still high. And you'll see in the book, we're working on many priority two projects. We're even working on priority three projects. I don't think we're working on any priority four right now. We just don't have the resources to, to, to dig that far down. We do relook at these because sometimes as time goes on, the risk that we're trying to mitigate or the benefit that could be delivered would change and it becomes, it increases. And so that would be cause to move it up in the prioritization system. We don't do that so much on the off year like this year, but when we redo the CIP next year, beginning in the summer, like I mentioned, we'll look at all of it. We'll look at the, the pricing, the scheduling, the priority, the scope, all of it to make sure it's still a valid project. So let's get into the book a little bit. Um, you, you probably don't have your copy here, but um, which I can't imagine why you wouldn't carry it with you everywhere you go, but you know, that's just me. Um, so the CIP book really has four main sections. The first one is an overview and summary. It really just describes kind of the things I'm talking about here tonight. Gives the reader the overview of the program, why we do it, how it's put together, that sort of thing. And then we have a section that is all the project lists. So it's all the same projects, but we slice it and dice it in different ways. Uh, program areas or priorities, or uh, you could see in the list, and I'll show you uh, here on the screen in a minute. The nine program areas that we've divided the CIP into, we have a section that speaks about each one of those. And then finally, the last part is all the resolutions for adopting the CIP. So that over, overview and summary, I'm not going to read the screen, but you can see what the table of contents looks like. So those are the kinds of things that you find in that section. 
really describe the, the, the who, what, why we do this. In the project list section, these are all the lists that are there. Again, same projects, just presented in different ways depending on how, what you're looking for. If you're looking for the grant-funded projects or the measure O, or you want to look up a project and you know the title, or you want to look at it by priority in a program area, we've, we've outlined that all for you here. You'll notice the last one is that listing of all those unplanned projects. So unfortunately, probably the one that you might be very interested in could be in that section. It happens all too often, and it's simply a function of just resources, what we're able to do. But if there is one there that just is very important to you, I'd like to have that conversation uh, so that in February, when we come together for the study session, we're not talking about it there for the first time. We've talked about it, and at the study session, we feel very comfortable with where we are, the direction you've given us, and really at that time, you've, you've pretty much told us what we've presented is good to go, because we only have four weeks after that to, to finalize it, get it ready for you to approve in March, which doesn't give us a whole lot of time to make big changes. So I really highly encourage you to please reach out between now and, and the end of February. And then finally, each program area section. The nine program areas are lifted on the left, and on the right you see all of the topics that are covered there. The project lists are kind of the same list, but now they're just for that program area. Uh, tried to make it as easy as we could for you to find that project that you're interested in and however you want to look at it. This is where you're going to find in the, in the back, and similar to what's attached to the staff report, all of what we call the project information sheets, which I'll talk about in a minute. But that gives you all the more detailed information on the project. So this is a typical project list. This happens to be the one in the book that's a work plan projects by title. And let's say you wanted to really look at that 2022 east side sidewalk repairs. It happens to be a project that we're, um, I think we may have completed by now. Uh, but I'll use this as an example. So you would turn to the section, the program area for streets and transportation. That's where that project is. The project ID is in the right-hand column, 9109 or 91091. Turning to that section and in the back, you're going to find the project number in the bottom right-hand corner. Um, the, the project information sheets are turned on their side, so when you're holding the book, it's actually up in the upper right, but when you look at it, it's the lower left. They're in numerical order, so you would just find that page, turn to it, and what you'll see when you open your book is on the top is going to be a map that'll show the location of the project. In this case, it was a big area because it was sidewalk repairs in a, in a big area. If it's a, a waterline, you're going to see just a line showing there where it is. And then the bottom half is going to be all that project information that I had mentioned. The top third of that page it gives you the, the coordinator. That's the person, if you will, uh, consider the client, the person really requesting the project, asking for this to be done, the funding, the districts, how it ties into the general plan, description, justification, a lot of that kind of information. The middle of the project or middle of the page is where is that work plan. The left-hand column are the different categories of spending, how we estimate a project. Moving left to right tells you if we've already spent money, um, what, what the total estimate is, what we spent up till at least at the end of June last year, and what the spending plan was for the next five years. Uh, in this case, you can see all the spending was planned for the current fiscal year, nothing in later years. It'll be different for other projects, obviously. When you look in the book, I'll just remind you, 
really it's years two through five are now, you know, what's in play. Year two becomes year one. And then at the bottom is just some additional information of um, maybe critical elements or other funding or agency coordination, that kind of thing. So what are the proposed changes? We've identified those in the staff report. Well, we proposed seven new projects. Those project information sheets are, are in your staff report. You can see the listing here. It's a, quite a varied number. Some will be starting, actually already started in the current fiscal year, 23. Some will be starting in 24 if approved. And then we have a couple that are unfunded, uh, but we want to start them in 24. Uh, so we still have to work with finding the funding to do that. We completed the six projects that you see listed that are on the right-hand column. And then we deleted four projects for various reasons. Either their scope was incorporated in another project or something we did eliminated the need, the requirements changed, any number of things. We've, we've uh, detailed in the staff report why we would have deleted those projects. Uh, real briefly, the, uh, the Fair Political Practices Commission um, uh, defines the conflicts of interest, and there may be some potential conflicts of interest for council members who own property proximate to some of the project locations. Uh, and you can see the categories spelled out on the screen. Within 500 feet, there almost always is a conflict of interest. Uh, 500 to 1,000, advice from the city attorney, over 1,000, probably okay, but there are some um, situations where maybe not. We're actually working with, with the city attorney and city clerk to determine um, what we need to do with conflicts of interest going forward. Our past practice has been that when you've adopted the CIP, the council has done it with multiple resolutions, with council members abstaining from a resolution where they might have a conflict. We won't be doing that this year. We don't need to do that this year. And we still are determining just how much we really need to address this with regard to CIP. Obviously, it applies in other areas, but not maybe not in CIP. And, I think we'll have more information for that at the study session. Our next steps are the uh, stakeholder reviews that I mentioned earlier, our study session on the 27th, as I mentioned, and then the uh, final adoption on the uh, March 27th. And our recommendation for this evening is to receive and file the proposed changes. Of course, happy to take any questions, receive any direction from council if you'd like to see any adjustments. And with that, I will take any questions. Thank you, Mr. Nelson. Council questions. Do we have, um, Mr. City Clerk, any emails, public comments? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Two public speaker cards submitted. Our first speaker is George Amendola, followed by Spencer Norin. Michael, can you please pull up slide number 10? Sorry, Phil, could you pull up slide number 10? Oh, thank you. He's I got this one. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Hi, good evening again. Hopefully this is my last time here this evening for three minutes. I want to go back to the conversation earlier about broadband in my comments about a policy discussion for council goals. 
And I mentioned that there's no broadband policy or master plan policy, strategic plan adopted by council. And I want to thank Mr. Nelson for this excellent depiction of three reasons to do anything. And I think it serves as a framework to create a broadband policy. So I'd like you all to study that, think about it, think about the impact holistically on the city from a larger perspective, rather than just infrastructure, because it affects the entire community uh, about having adequate access to broadband. Now, on slide number 15, if possible. Thank you. So regarding the presentation, as, as Mr. Nelson uh, did a great job, by the way. Thank you. And um, I would say that a lot of the things with the broadband master policy would affect if the city were to have a dig once policy, uh, that would go back to utilizing resources adequately, not inconveniencing the public for digging up roads on an ongoing basis. One project's completed for stormwater, we're gonna go back and do streets and transportation. Oh, we're gonna dig it up again for wastewater. Uh, that's inefficient. The opportunity may exist to find efficiency, cost savings within coalescing these projects with the dig once policy. Uh, slide number 23, please. So that leads me to the deleted project of broadband. And the staff report, Mr. Nelson highlighted broadband as being deleted because of this sci-fi agreement. Now, once again, we had a, a strong debate on that, and I'm not here to speak against the sci-fi agreement, but what I am here is to say I disagree with Mr. Nelson's recommendations. I don't think they serve well for accountability. Um, I don't think they serve well for transparency, and I don't necessarily believe that they will deliver the essential services as has been represented. Sci-fi is an unproven entity. They're a vendor. There's no contractual obligation for them to put in what appeared now for the first time, a miraculous number in the CIP of 70 to $90 million. That number has never been in the CIP transmittal at any time prior to this evening. It's miraculous, and now it's being deleted. So I question the good judgment of that. Thank you. Our next speaker and final speaker is Spencer Noren. Thank you, Michael. Good evening, Council, Mayor. I wanted to pull up actually slide number 10 as well, please, if you could, staff. Thank you, Tracy. I want to look here real fast and talk from a former Parks Rec Commissioner's point of view when it comes to capital improvement projects. And to remind Council that Parks and Rec are underneath the same umbrella when it comes to financing, something I think we should look deeply into to remove this department and this section away from these capital improvement projects. Because when you look at the same indicators and these three uh, points that Mr. Um, Nelson did a great job, I agree with what George said. Where does f Parks and Rec fit into this? Mitigate only reasons to do anything. So we're talking about building a playground or building something for kids, children experience, mitigate a risk, obtain a benefit and council priority. It seems almost counterintuitive, right? It seems working opposite against the kids. We look at like the zip line at Marina Park. We gotta bring things back so kids can have fun and experience that. It goes all back to our whole philosophy about families, way of life, 
building a future for the next generation. We're using a way to do capital improvement projects that really affect our parks and rec. Actually, hold on a second. pull up the risk for unfunded capital improvement projects underneath the parks and rec. I'm going to take my time to read them all, actually. Replacement of trailers at Olivas Golf Course, Ventura Event Center, Olivas Park Golf Course Improvements, Median Sidewalks Lighting in South Seaward, Johnson Drive Median, Park ex Exterior Lighting, Harry Lyon Park Lighting, Chumash Park Lighting, Arroyo Verde Park Trail Upgrades, Community Park Playground Structure, West Park Improvements, Camino Real Sports Field Lighting, Parks Underground Trash Recycle and Can Installation, Mission Park Figueroa Plaza Enhancements, Hilltop Drive Grove Street Median Stabilization, Marina Park Paid Parking, Telegraph Road Median. Telegraph Road Median? We talked about that earlier tonight. Why is it still here? Because these are the projects that get buried. They get buried and buried and buried. And it's happened for 10, 15, 20 years for the quality of life in our community. I understand water is important, but how many hundreds of millions of dollars are we going to figure out on water before a community sees the return? They're not seeing it. They're moving out of Ventura because the quality of life is going down because capital improvement projects aren't showing us what we care about. Royal Verde irrigation retrofit. We can't even ride the blocks of ice anymore because there's no grass. I know it's being fixed, but it could have been faster. I'm going to stop there with the Westside Community Pool. Thank you so much for your time. That concludes our speakers on item 19. Council deliberation and or motion. I entertain a motion. I make a motion to receive and file the proposed changes to the approved capital improvement plan for fiscal years. 23 to 27 to be incorporated into the proposed capital improvement plan for fiscal years 24-28. Thank you, Mayor. Before I second that, I'd just like to thank Mr. Nelson for what I think is probably the most cogent explanation I've seen yet about the, um, the five-year uh, program and the two-year cycle because that's a heck of a thing. So with that, I would second the motion. Okay. We'll move to a vote. Mr. City Clerk. Okay, on item 19, go ahead and enter in your vote now. All votes have been entered. Seven ayes, and the motion carries. Thank you, Mr. City Clerk. Any comments received by email? Thank you, Mr. Mayor. For public communications? Yes. We do have uh, two public speaker cards this evening. And we have uh, also received communications via email, and those are posted in a supplemental packet. Uh, we have three speakers this evening. We have Terrence Foley, followed by Spencer Noren, and our last speaker will be Maria Ventura. And just as an aside, it is 10.57 now. Mayor, I move that we continue past 11 o'clock. Do we have a second? Second. I second. Second, thank you. you want to take a vote, a voice? Okay, never mind. Let's vote. Thank you, Mr. City Clerk. Okay, a motion on to extend past 11 p.m. Go ahead and enter your vote. Okay, all votes have been entered. Seven ayes and the motion carries. Welcome, Mr. Foley. Thank you.
Well, good evening, everybody. I'm Terry Foley, speaking on behalf of the Pierpont Bay Community Council Executive Board. And pretty simple message, as we're going toward the, toward the goal setting on Saturday and talking of goals tonight, just talking about the goals, the carryover goal, the priority goal that started out for 2022, front burner for both legal and planning, was the update and improvement to the short-term vacation rental ordinance. And nothing happened during 2022, so I'm asking that that be rolled over as a, as a priority goal for 2023. So because it is a housing issue and because everybody on the dais agrees that housing issues are important, that's what, that's what we're looking to focus on. As I said in June, the city is headed toward a loss, a net loss of about 156 homes from the long-term housing stock, from uh, houses becoming businesses, the short-term vacation rental businesses. The city is still on track for that unfortunate goal. And uh, since I spoke to you last two weeks ago, there's more STVRs now. So, you know, it is it, a reason we'd like to have it happen. It's a, it's, it meets the criteria that Mr. Nelson established of three reasons to do things. But also, it's the easiest goal. It's the one where the work's already done. All the other cities in California, and especially on the coast, have done the work and said, this is what it takes to make it tight, tighten up an ordinance and make it better. And they've taken you know, input from their, from their community and put it together. The towns of Santa Rosa and Pacific Grove have done remarkable things late, lately that I, in three minutes I can't tell you, but to update their uh, ordinances and to improve the housing profile that they have. So what, what I'm asking again is that the city council and the uh, city manager and city attorney would have a goal and say, what is our vision for the future of the short-term vacation rental ordinance program? And just as I'm real impressed that the city council tonight put in so much work on the, the Fritch residents and obvious care for the, for the people involved. Now, I'm very impressed. And not everybody has the knowledge to, to know what construction projects entail, but certainly everybody wanted to engage, wanted to see a good resolution. I have seen evidence from, from uh, acting city manager, Holly Khan, and from our, our mayor, Joe Schrader, to move toward perhaps a mediated settlement toward you know, what would be a good way to implement the changes to the STVR ordinance. Like I said before, the simple part here is that every other community has done the work. The compromises have been made. The Coastal Commission knows the parameters that it wants to see, and we're headed in the right direction. So as we go toward goal setting, I'd like to ask that be a priority. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Spencer Noren, followed by our final speaker, Maria Ventura. Good evening, Council. Thank you again. Uh, number one thing, I think it still should be moved that all public comments should be moved to the beginning of the meeting. Whether it's the first meeting of the month or the last meeting, I think waiting five hours for someone like Mr. Foley to speak can be changed. Number two, um, what a great event we had Saturday at the King Tide event. Awesome job, staff, for getting down there, having over 100 people out there. Our new interim city manager, Akbar, was there. A lot of other great council members were there, of course. So good to see that. We're bringing that awareness to that living restoration project and the coastline there. Also brings me into bringing your awareness for number three here is the possibility of a fairgrounds being upgraded. I looked through the, the minutes of the last fair board meeting and there was discussion about a land swap 
of the fairgrounds of 100 plus acres in Santa Paula for our current situation here. So, and also we know of a new group named PSG a few weeks in the paper came out with a possible proposal of a multi-use outdoor stadium and enhancement to the fairgrounds. Just want to let council know that this conversation is working. I think it's very important you're aware of what's happening because we all know how important it is to carry the, the tradition of our ancestors of this land being ceremonial place to worship and gather as a community, also living the, the, the legacy of the Foster family in Seaside Park. So thank you. And number three, I saw on the agenda today in the consent items was the completion and the approval of the skate park funding. Thank you so much. I really wanted to say as former Parks Right Commissioner, uh, I had a small hand in this, but staff over the last 10 years has done an amazing job. We were ready for the grant and the grant process when those came down through. So the community needs a skate park. They've been working hard for it. It's a big day for the skateboarding community in Ventura. So I want to come in and say a good kudos to that for staff for appreciating that. Thank you for approving it. Have a nice night. And our final speaker is Maria Ventura. Maria, you should be able to unmute yourself. Hello? Yes, we can hear you. Thank you. Um, Honorable Mayor and City Council, my name is Maria Ventura. I'm the Senior Public Affairs Manager for SoCalGas. I am reaching out to inform all customers that natural gas prices are going to be even higher than usual this January due to several unprecedented factors beyond our control. Customers may see a winter natural gas bill double or higher compared to one year ago. The high bills are a result of historically high natural gas prices in the Western United States. SoCal gas doesn't set the price for natural gas. Instead, natural gas prices are determined by national or regional markets. SoCal gas buys natural gas in those markets on behalf of residential and small business customers, and the cost of buying that gas is billed to those customers with no markup meaning SoCal gas is not profitable from the gas commodity price going up. To help our customers reduce energy bills, we encourage them to lower the thermostat three to five degrees, install proper caulking and water stripping, weather stripping. This could save roughly 10 to 15% on heating and cooling bills, wash clothes in cold water, reduce the temperature on their water heater, lowering the temperature on the water heater or setting to at 120 degrees can save up to 22% energy costs. Limit the use of non-essential natural gas appliances such as spas, pool heaters, and fireplaces. We encourage um, customers to visit SoCalGas.com backslash manage higher bills for more information. We also offer several ways to help income qualified customers through our bill assistance and forgiveness programs, home improvement assistance, and the level paid program. In addition, SoCalGas recently announced a $1 million contribution to the gas assistance fund a program that helps income-qualified customers pay their natural gas bill. To learn more, please visit SoCalGas.com backslash assistance. Thank you for your time. And that concludes our public speakers on public communications. Uh, do you have a list of, um, <clears throat> we had a couple groups we wanted to dedicate the meeting to tonight? That's right, yes I do. So I have, uh, the meeting will be adjourned in memory of Augustine de Paz, Jesus Aaron Archiga, and Lori Flack. The meeting will also be adjourned uh, in memory of the 11 lives lost in the shooting in Monterey. And before we close tonight, I'd also like to re remind everybody that the goal setting meeting will be at the Ventura Museum, and that's at 9 o'clock, and that the SCAG voting is January 26th for all of us to support somebody that we all know.
And with that, I'll adjourn to a closed session. Thank you very much. Thanks, everybody.